Hey everyone, Jonathan here. Quick note before we start today's show, uh, a little of an audio error in the first couple minutes of this episode. Sean's audio is fine, but you will hear my audio uh, was coming through the wrong microphone for about the first 12 minutes of today's podcast. Uh, I wear Apple AirPods when I am recording to monitor and hear Sean and everything, and the audio was being piped through that, not through my nice fancy microphone. Uh, so it's going to sound like I am on a phone call with you for about 12 minutes, and then that does get fixed for the rest of the episode. Nice, fancy, good, normal audio. Uh, but just wanted to give you a heads up so you are not shocked or worried it will be the entire episode. It is not. Uh, but please enjoy today's Weekly Stuff podcast. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. Going to give you guys my first impressions uh, after a, a full week and a little bit more of playing on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Little game, not many people are playing it. Um, it's not particularly popular, but I thought we should shed some light on this uh, underseen little indie title. Uh, and then uh, we'll talk. We'll shoot. We'll shoot the shit. We'll talk about some other stuff. We didn't record last week. Well, we did. We recorded something you'll hear in August. Uh, but we've been working on other things. The other thing we were working on, actually, uh, is Japanimation Station season three, which we announced after the last weekly stuff podcast. So season two of Japanimation Station UFO Table Moonworks is complete. You can go listen to that entire thirteen episode season. It's great. All the Fate Stay Night and Garden of Sinners stuff. Uh, really proud of that season. But we are deep into production on season three, which is the classic adventures of Lupin III, where we are talking about all the great adventures with uh, the gentleman thief, Japanese hero, Lupin III. Uh, and, and that is going to be an eight-episode season premiering on Independence Day, July 4th, here in the United States. Uh, and we are so excited for you to hear that. So, so get hyped for season three. Yeah, it's very good. As you say, Jonathan, we are most of the way through recording it already. Um, and it's a really awesome season. If people have not watched any Lupin stuff, then you are like me. This is a this is a reverse of the usual. Um, kind of like uh, with Full Metal Alchemist, where I had not seen any of it. Jonathan, you had not necessarily seen everything, but you had a lot more Lupin experience than I did. Um, and yeah, it's a cool season of the show where we go from watching stuff that aired in 1971 to I think the last thing we'll talk about is like from 2002. So it is yes. a fun season that kind of goes through in many ways, like the whole history of TV anime by picking up this weird little show, Lupin the Third, along the way. And um, some very famous movies uh, like Castle of Cagliostro that I had not seen before we recorded that episode. So, Yeah, and we'll have a full little preview coming up here in a couple of weeks that'll tell you what all we're watching and where you can find it. Although I did put a little bit of that on Twitter just to give people an early guide of where stuff is and where you can find it. Because again, this is 
I mean, yeah, 71 to 2002, it's over 30 years of stuff. So it's like a broad, you know, the, the UFO Table Moonwork season was about 10 years in total. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is three times as long a like span of time to find stuff. So really cool. Like we said, that is premiering July 4th and will air throughout the summer. And it is, I'm very proud of it and very excited for that. A uh, couple other pieces of housekeeping before we go on. Uh, I want again uh, ur- urge everybody to subscribe to our little uh, Substack newsletter. It's the Weekly Stuff Wordcast, weeklystuff.substack.com. Um, it's free. It'll always be free. It's just a simple little thing where I'm posting podcast stuff. But also, I've been writing a shocking number of movie reviews lately for me because I hadn't done that in a while. But I've got a lot. You can read my review of Fast X the new Fast and Furious movie, or Fast 10. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Um, these The titles of the Fast and Furious movies have moved beyond the realm of being weird to being um, ambiguous to how you're even supposed to say them. Uh, so that is out. Uh, I also just posted this. When this podcast comes out, it would have been earlier today. I put up a, a ranking of all of those movies, an updated version of that. Um, I reviewed the movie Blackberry last week. That's a fantastic movie everyone should see. So you should go follow that. There's good stuff going on over there. And I'm just trying to build up social medias that are not Twitter because it's Uh collapsing. Um, And I don't know. If people have suggestions about that, let me know. But we're working on it. Yeah, it does feel like the internet is still trying to, like, figure out what what happens in in the post-Twitter world. Um, because it yeah. used to be, you know, every three to four years, whatever big website everyone was on just kind of died and everyone silently migrated somewhere else. But this is like one of the first major website deaths, I feel like, in this modern era of like the mega website thing. Um, and so it is like a different it feels very different than when MySpace died or when Dig died or all those kinds of that early social media shit. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's yeah, it's kind of the first big death of like the mature web two era. So we'll see we'll see what happens with that. It's been so fun. Uh, and last piece of housekeeping, I just wanted to announce uh, I am actually hosting here in Iowa City. I am teaching uh, a little series with our local nonprofit cinema film scene, which is my favorite movie theater in the world. I go there all the time. Uh, it's our cool, awesome nonprofit theater here in Iowa City. They show all sorts of things. I say nonprofit, and people might think, oh, it's just the art house stuff. Oh, it's all the art house stuff, but also, like, that's where I saw John Wick 4. It's where I saw the Mario movie. They do lots of great stuff, and I love that theater. And I am um, working with them. They are doing a series, one of their Film Scene 101 series, and they're doing it on Wes Anderson because he has his new movie, Asteroid City, coming out this year. And uh, it's four weeks, and it is a series where we're going to show four Wes Anderson movies, and then I'm going to host a little lecture-slash-discussion teaching thing that'll run about 30 to 45 minutes after the movie. Those are on Tuesday night, starting May 30th with Bottle Rocket. The week after that, we have the Royal Tenenbaums, then Moonrise Kingdom, and finally the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I am just very psyched for this. I'm starting to put some stuff together for it, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I haven't seen those first two on the big screen before. I've only seen them at home. So that's going to be exciting. Um, And obviously they're all great movies. And it's actually pretty affordable. If you're a member, it's only a $25 pass for all four. If it's general public, it's $35 for all four. Uh, Still a pretty good deal for some great movies. And those are they're they're showing the movies on some other nights as well, if you can't make it to the Tuesday night 
screenings. Tuesday night is the only night we're doing the film scene 101 thing. Um, but this is the first time I've done this with film scene. Uh, some different people at the University of Iowa have, have done this before. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I just wanted to shout that out for anyone here in Iowa City. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's really cool. I, 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 you know, it's sad that this will be the last Wes Anderson movie because AI just makes Wes Anderson movies now, apparently, according to Twitter. Um, that's like the only thing that AI knows how to do, apparently, is make very <laughs> bad, not at all Wes Anderson facsimile screenshots with random actors. Um, so, you know, this will be the last one. So if people want to get in, uh, you know, while the ship's sinking because of AI, there we go. It, it honestly, I know I'm going to get questions about that from the audience. And I'm gonna I'm gonna need someone with a stiff drink on hand so that I don't just like explode because it's so it's so dumb because if you want to make an actual Wes Anderson parody, they're fun to make. There's my favorite SNL parody trailer ever is the Midnight Coterie of Sinister mm -hmm. Intruders, which is this pitch perfect parody of Wes Anderson where they got real I mean it's very funny because they have like Edward Norton playing um, Owen Wilson which is great um, but it's like they actually put in the work to do the set design and the music and all of it and make it fun uh, and no the AI stuff is bad all AI stuff is bad I haven't seen anything compelling from this AI bullshit uh, but that is particularly annoying because it's like Wes Anderson is just the modern auteur with the aesthetic that is recognizable enough for them to do this with. Like, it would be harder to be like, make the Martin Scorsese Star Wars. Uh, Martin Scorsese is great, but he doesn't, his movies don't all look like Wes Anderson movies, you know? Uh, so anyway, it's annoying. But I actually, I like the real Wes Anderson, not AI Wes Anderson. So there you go. Film scene does serve alcohol, so they might be able to do that for me and have the drink on hand for when people ask the AI question. Yeah, just take a shot. That's your the new <laughs> drinking game for the Q and A's. Yes. Take a shot anytime someone asks about bad Wes Anderson AI parries <laughs> online. About from people who have never seen. I think this is the thing. Like whenever you see those tweets or whatever, it's always people who clearly have never actually watched a Wes Anderson movie. They yes. saw trailers for Wes Anderson movies, but they're all AI evangelists. So they're like, oh look here's Adrian Brody in AI Wes Anderson Star Trek or whatever. Uh, it's like, and I know this because his movies had bright colors in that one trailer I saw. Um, yes. And this shows how impressive AI is. And then every single person who has ever seen a Wes Anderson movie is like, shut the fuck up and please get off the internet. I just, I have to say the thing that I think is underreported and un misunderstood in all of the AI stuff is that the people who are uh, grifting us with AI are all the same people who were grifting us with Web3 and crypto like two years yes. ago. So could we please have a memory longer than that of a goldfish? We literally just saw an economic crash in all the stuff these guys were talking up like several months ago. So maybe shut the fuck up about whatever they're talking about now because it is all a grift and a scam. Ignore it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. I'm excited to see what the next one is after all the AI yeah. stuff ends up not working because of the obvious fundamental flaws in we the only way this operates is by stealing people's stuff online. Um, <laughs> it's like, like if you extend that out enough, there obviously it can no longer function because for it to be able to operate, it needs people to make the content that it steals from. Therefore, it can never be so useful that it replaces the things that it steals from. Therefore, right. it is pointless. Um, so it's like once everyone realizes that, I'm excited to see what the next bullshit they get onto is. It's hilarious. Yeah, I said this on Twitter the other day. Uh, that the whole generative AI is the most lie-infused term mm -hmm. of all time. It's not generative. It's just recompiling things that are already on the internet. And as you say, the nth degree of that is that there's nothing left to recompile. 
because it's so stupid. It's so stupid. Anyway, um, we did not get any quite. We have a listener mail segment next week. We did not get any questions about AI, but there you go. That's our answer to it. Yes. Uh, Sean, what have you been up to? Let's talk some stuff. I've it's it's been Star Wars weeks for me here uh, because I I mean this feels like forever ago, but I did finish Star Wars Jedi Survivor, which we talked about on the last week stuff uh, podcast, and then since then I have watched the Book of Boba Fett. I have watched because I had never seen that. Um, I watched Mandalorian season three, and I am also in the process of watching season two of Star Wars: The Bad Batch, the like Clone Wars successor show. Um, all the, one of the reasons why I'm watching all this stuff, weirdly enough, has to do with the um, very mediocre early 2000, 2010s uh, children's movie Nomeo and Juliet, which is on Disney Plus. What? Uh, Wait. We're doing a weird, you know, as as was you know decided by some sort of ancient pact with the devil made by an ancient ninth grade English teacher. Um, all ninth grade English classes must teach a Romeo and Juliet unit. So that's what we're, we're ending the year with. And, you know, we have like a couple of extra days where we're not going to do anything intensive when they get ready for their final exams and stuff. So I was just showing them Nomeo and Juliet. And I was like, well, that's on Disney. How do I show that? That's on Disney Plus. You know what else is on Disney Plus? Star Wars shit. You know what I've been doing? Playing Star Wars. And that is how uh, I have been doing a lot of Star Wars shit recently. Of all the Romeo and Juliet adaptations, why Romeo and Juliet? Did they like vote on it? Did they? So watch we it? we did watch lots of clips from actual Romeo and Juliet adaptations. This is like we are basically done. We've got like weird like the way the end of the school year is scheduled is very weird, and we have these like oh here's like this weird half day because of all this other stuff going on. So it's like we're not going to nobody's doing anything real. We've already done Romeo and Juliet. We did the last project. Here's a here's a dumb kids movie, and they're they're they love it. They're they're okay. all into the Nomeo and Juliet. Um, it's got a weirdly star-studded cast. So I guess all those weird animated movies have like a weirdly star-studded cast. Like James McAvoy plays Nomeo. Um, I think Emily Blunt, I want to say, is Juliet. It's just like a lot of you know that kind of stuff. Um, so, but that so thank you Nomeo and Juliet because I I want you got me back into watching Star Wars stuff because I could justify I should expense that like eight dollar one month of Disney Plus I paid. Um, I should like see if the school pay that for me. Sean, did you know, are you going to do like a Sherlock Holmes unit next? So you can do the Sherlock Gnomes movie that was the sequel to Nomeo and Juliet? Uh, no, I did. I did. Uh, I did read about those movies when uh, <laughs> I, on the Wikipedia page when I sat at my computer and I was just like, I don't have the middle space to do grading and I'm not going to watch Nomeo and Juliet six different times in one day. So I was like getting into the production history. I've, I have since forgotten all of it, but I did look up that there was a long in development Sherlock Gnomes movie and it took like eight years or something. Um, and it seems really bad. Every even people who liked Nomeo and Juliet didn't like Sherlock Gnomes. So um, it's got Johnny yes. Depp as Sherlock Gnomes. The kids yes. love wife beater Johnny Depp. Anyway, uh, oof, yeah. Well, anyway, that's funny. So okay, Nomeo and Juliet aside, I'm curious to hear what you hear have thought about all this Star Wars stuff because you've now lapped me. I had seen Book of Boba Fett. I have not watched Mandalorian season three yet. What did you think of all that? Yeah. So let me start with Jedi Survivor just because I. Um, I, I need to talk about it before, you know, uh, it's, it is such a fucking good game. Uh, we talked about it a little bit on the last weekly stuff where, um, I had gotten, I think through like the first section you're on Kobo and that's pretty early overall in the story. Um, and cause I think I hadn't even unlocked some of like the early game, like main major upgrades you get. Like one of the first big upgrades you get is an air dash, 
which fucking rules and is so much fun. Um, and that like really changes a lot of the platforming in that game. Yeah, Jedi Survivor, if you like Jedi Fallen Order, um, I think the the kind of, you know, the elevator pitch for how good this is, is it is absolutely an Assassin's Creed 2 style sequel where it took this kind of very interesting but somewhat awkward first game and then made just like a really fascinating um, kind of fully realized version of it. Um, and just top to bottom, Jedi Survivor is fantastic. The combat is so much better, particularly when you get into some of the late game stuff and you have five different lightsaber stances you can choose from, um, all of them with their own skill trees, which adds a huge amount of variety to the combat. All of them are also like feel very distinct, um, which was an issue I had with the first game where you had the single blade and dual blade stances, but there wasn't that much of a difference between them. Here, they've they've totally retooled the way that both of the existing stances worked, so they are much more differentiated. But then also things like the dual wield stance, the blaster stance, and then the cross guard stance, which is basically like a heavy stance with big, slow, but um, hard hitting attacks. All of those are really heavily differentiated stylistically, and the game gives you enough skill points that it like you have more than enough skill points to level up all the skill trees. So I think it really encourages you to experiment as you unlock the new styles. Um, and I had extensively used all five of them over the course of my playing through the game, um, which is very satisfying because it just gives you a lot of space to mix up and mess around with the combat. Um, the platforming is so much, so much fun. I think that's one of the things, Jonathan, uh, when you play the game, you're going to really like how much they've expanded the way the platforming works, where you get some really key abilities like that air dash, um, and just, um, the, you have a grappling hook thing. You've got, um, what they do with all the rails that were in the first game where you kind of do a zip line sort of thing, but they've really expanded that. And there's all these crazy sequences where you're like going on a rail, you're jumping double jump air dash to a wall jump to where you then do like a like wall run to the where you do, um, you know, like a double jump air dash through this like little thing that will launch you even higher and just chain all these different sort of platforming moves you have together in these really fun sequences. Um, a pro tip for that as well as if people are playing, I would recommend you can go into the accessibilities menu and turn off fall damage, which I think also makes those more fun because you don't have a, consequence for failing other than you have to retry the sequence um and, and it's very good about just putting you back where you were if you fail the platforming section very quickly um so all of that just like the gameplay top to bottom is so refined and really compelling including the open world exploration stuff that is much more fun uh because all the upgrades you get or not upgrades but the cosmetics you get are vastly more interesting um and it's the kind of game where as you play through, when you hit major story beats, it feels fun to like change up the way the character looks and customize them slightly differently to kind of match the tenor of the story. There's a very big kind of like, you know, um, dark twist or whatever, um, like a big thing that happens at the end of the second act structurally in the plot, um, as you would expect where it would happen in the plot that like motivated me to really ch radically change the way that cow looked that felt really fun and appropriate for the character. And so it felt very rewarding to do all the exploration. You want to do the exploration to get the cosmetics so you can deepen your customization of the way your character looks and kind of personalize it even more. And that, you know, just makes all the running around doing open world kind of little puzzles and figuring out where the chests are and all that stuff I just found much more rewarding. You don't have the problem that first game had of seeing that you missed a couple of collectibles in one area and having to go 
run through a like 15 minute long linear section of the game to get back to this one specific spot to go get a chest and then it's like a third poncho color and you're like well fuck (laughs) great (laughs) i'm glad i spent all that time to get a slightly different looking poncho i'm never going to wear um here it makes getting back to areas is so much easier with fast travel the areas are much smarter designed so that you have fewer like long linear sections they build more shortcuts so it's easier when you're going back through an area to find everything again um and then the rewards you find are much better So it's like the game design top to bottom is so refined and so well thought through and developed. And then the story, I think, is also great. It starts off a little bit weird. It starts off, um, and I kind of didn't know entirely what to make of it, I think, the last time we did the podcast. Other than that, the character writing is good. Like, Cal is a really interesting character, and they've done a really good job of developing him because he kind of sucked in that first game. But he's a really strong protagonist now that I think has an interesting dilemma of figuring out how you survive, you know, as in the title, how do you survive in this universe with the empire when you know you're not going to win? You know you can't defeat the empire. You know that both because it's impossible and we know that because he's not Luke. We know how that happens. So it's like, what does this dude do with his life? Is an interesting question, but the way the plot starts off just is a bit meandering early on. But once everything clicks into sort of focus at the end of the second act, the whole last third of this game is absolute dynamite. And I just think it's got such a great home stretch with big, strong reveals, um, really like interesting character development, developing the relationships between the characters in a really compelling way. And I think like arriving at an interesting point for Cal as a character, having to come to terms with his place in the galaxy um, and having to come to terms to a certain extent with like, How do you live with the Empire being a thing? How much of your life do you dedicate to that fight? How much of your life do you dedicate to living? Um, And I think that is like a really compelling core theme to explore uh, today, right? When living in a world that has so gone to shit. Um, I think there's a lot you can kind of sympathize with and go on that kind of journey with Cal. And there's no sort of, um, you know, it doesn't give you some sort of definitive answer. But that journey and that exploration of that question, I think, is incredibly well handled um and it makes me extremely excited for the third game because they don't necessarily sort of set it up with a big cliffhanger or anything but i think there are just lots of directions where you can feel they can go with a third game that they've said that they sort of envisioned this as a trilogy um as as all stories for whatever these days are always envisioned as trilogies but a third part i think there's a lot of cool places you can go with this character and find out You know, I'm so curious what happens to Cal. Do they kill him off eventually? Like what happens to him in the future um, is is a thing I'm like legitimately incredibly excited for. And that is not something I ever would have said after Fallen Order. I think the general like consensus after Fallen Order, I remember us talking about it on that podcast was like, eh, Cal was fine, but whatever. But Marin, the Night Sister character, was way cooler. And she is super cool and she's in this game and, and her stuff in this game is really rad. Um, but I think they justify having Cal as a protagonist um, in a way that that first game, I think, struggled with. So this is this has uh, become, in some ways, I think, like the de facto Star Wars like action game now. In, um, like it's either this or you go back to Jedi Knight 2 um, Jedi Outcast. But this like has not I wouldn't say supplanted it, but this like sort of exists now in my mind alongside Jedi 2 Jedi Outcast as like definitive Jedi action games in a way that Fallen Order I don't think ever got there I think this is totally there and if you 
as I have already done with a New Game Plus run. I think if you play this game and you're a fan of Star Wars, you will like occasionally just jones for running around and swinging a lightsaber and fighting battle droids and shit like that. And you can load up this game and go around and have fun. And I have since beating it like two weeks ago. I'm maybe like one third of the way through a New Game Plus run just fucking around with it and just having a good time. So Jedi Survivor is gets uh, a very high recommendation for me. If people have not played it, if you have been scared away from some of like the tech talk, I can't speak to the PC version, but the PS5 version, if you just put it on the quality mode or leave it there, that's what it is by default, the 30 frames per second mode, it is totally fine. Um, it, I had like the game crashed on me, I think once, but I had far fewer technical issues with this than I did fall in order. Um, and you know, the game plays perfectly well at 30 frames per second. You do not need, it is not a kind of game that needs to be 60 frames per second to be fun. It is an open world action adventure game. It is not so demanding that you need that sort of fidelity of control, like a fighting game or racing game or something like that. So strongly recommend, um, it on console if people have a PS5 or a Series X. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to play it at some point. Um, you know, that'll depend on whether or not I ever find the bottom of Zelda, uh, which is a very big game. And then this summer is very busy for games. But eventually, I am very excited to play this one. And I'm glad it is. It sounds as good as it is. And yeah, everything you said, like just the idea that all the... Because ex- I liked all the exploring in the first game. But at a certain point, you had to accept like, I'm in this just for the experience because none of the rewards will possibly be worth it, which is the biggest mistake you can make with that kind of game. Uh, but yeah, I am. All of this stuff makes me excited. Yeah, and then you also get the joy of because all the cosmetics or most of the cosmetics are in those like chests you find. That includes all the like hair customization because you can get different hairstyles. So you do have incredibly <laughs> surreal moments where you open up a chest and it's like you got like wind blown hair or whatever, or now you've got a long beard, or now you you know you have a short goatee. It's like great, awesome. <laughs> It's like very bizarre. I don't know what was in this chest in like an imperial base or whatever that they had, you know, I don't know, like a, a men's catalog that had some new hairstyles in it. And, you know, <laughs> the, the short fashionable short goatee was circled. And he's like, you know, when I get back to my ship, I'll, I'll ask Grease to give me a haircut. Um, but I, I do adore that they just don't give a fuck. It's like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's how we've decided to dole out the cosmetics is in the chests. So all of our cosmetics, whatever, even if it makes no sense, they're going to be in those chests. Very funny. All right. What about the TV shows? I'm, I'm super curious to hear your thoughts on some of this because I have not watched Mandalorian season three because it just had a very muted reception. I mean, I, a huge part of that, I think, is just that they took like three years off between seasons and buried a giant plot development in the middle of a spinoff nobody liked. Uh, I kind of liked the spinoff, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a weird time for the star Wars shows over on Disney. Yeah. So I'll just like say up front, I think Mandalorian season three kicks ass. Um, like I don't really understand why. I mean, I understand for those reasons you just said of like, it is very weird that all the, like that Grogu turn and all that of him getting Grogu back is buried in the book of Boba Fett. Um, and that it took a long time to come out. But the quality of the show is just as good as it has ever been. Um, but let's talk about Boba Fett first of where this is, I think, the controversial one. And I imagine, Jonathan, I think I'm probably in a similar place as you of like, I don't hate the book of Boba Fett. Like, I think there's stuff in it that's totally fun. It also is a weird show that is all fucking all over the place. Like you made a fan edit of it, didn't you? Yeah, I did. 
I did. And actually, people were asking for me uh, in a bunch, and I've lost the hard drive that it was on. So I need to find it's. I, I know I have a backup somewhere. I have not found the hard drive. Uh, but yes, um, anyway, for anyone wondering why I have not been giving that out, uh, I don't have it at the moment. But yeah, no, I did because it's The Mandalorian Season 3. Uh-huh. But with a bo- l- bunch of Boba Fett stuff in it, which is fine. But like the point of my fan edit, and I do think I proved my point, is that you could, and it would be better if they had made it like this, not just editing it in post. But like you can re-edit it basically into Mandalorian season three. Just there's some Boba Fett episodes, which, given that the Mandalorian, and my understanding is in season three they do this even more, has some non-Mando episodes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been fine, and I actually like the Boba Fett stuff in general. I think it's an interesting take on the Star Wars universe. It's just that I think the emphasis is wrong. I think the flashbacks are scattered wrong. I think it is just a very bad piece of structuring and an absolutely disastrous piece of scheduling to essentially make Mandalorian Season 3, but call it something else and bury all the Mandalorian stuff at the end of the season just to maximally confuse anyone coming back for the actual Mandalorian Season 3 when they eventually got around to making that. Just a series of very bad, unforced errors that I think marred some good stuff overall. Yeah, like, I think that's basically how I feel about it as well. That there's just, like, I think one of the big issues for me is, like, the, the flashback stuff of where... I don't know if this is how you handle the fan edit, but in my mind, like they should have just had the flashback stuff be the first couple of episodes and not have it be flashbacks. Like that's just yeah. the story because, because book of Boba Fett is a mini series. Um, so it does not need to have what I think it felt like their urging was, which was we want to establish the status quo of the series is Boba Fett is the crime Lord of this area of Tatooine. Um, and it's about like his adventures as this crime lord. And so you want to set up that as the framework so that everyone understands that as the fundamental status quo of the show, um, which makes sense if you're making a like episodic procedural that is about Boba Fett being crime lord of Tatooine. And therefore, you want to frame everything in that context. But for this miniseries, um, that they're almost certainly not going to do a book of Boba Fett 2, either because they never had planned on it or because they'll be like this enough that they would make it. Um, it would make more sense to treat it like, okay, here's just this sort of continuous story of you pick up with Boba Fett. He gets, you know, vomited up by the Sarlacc pit or whatever. And he gets taken by the Tusken Raiders and you follow him from there to his journey, becoming a crime Lord to then eventually, you know, um, having the Mandalorian intersect with that story. I think that would make it feel cleaner because a big issue with this show is that Boba Fett is like the world's worst crime boss in the most infuriating ways. He makes the stupidest fucking choices constantly. Um, And those choices only make some kind of sense when you have them in the context of all of his experiences with the Tusken Raiders and him trying to be a different person. But that, like, is lost. I think the dramatic impact of that is lost when all the Tusken Raider stuff is scattered about in weird flashbacks that don't have a direct parallel to whatever's going on in the Crime Lord storyline. Because in matter of fact, there's not that much of him being a crime boss in Tatooine. Like, if you look at the runtime of those episodes, I feel like most of those first half of the show, those are primarily flashbacks with little bits and pieces of the crime boss stuff. And even that's usually dedicated to, here's a bad chase scene. Here's a, like, even worse and just incredibly bad chase scene. Um, and there's the very little character stuff that happens there. 
So it just felt so awkwardly balanced to me. And then you have like an episode and a half taken up by the Mandalorian. And then you have a very, very, very long plotting finale. That is all just the modern day stuff of him as a crime boss in Tatooine. And just feels like the balance of the show is all over the place. When a lot of those individual pieces, the flashbacks, the Mandalorian stuff, and a lot of the stuff in the finale, though not all of it, I think is really good and interesting and well done, but it's so thrown about all over the place in this very haphazard manner that it's really hard to get invested in the story they're telling. Yeah, actually, okay, I did just find on a hard drive, I do not have my, I found the original Final Cut library I made this in, so I could re-export these episodes. So maybe I will work on that, because I'm looking at it, and the way I handled it, Sean, is I re-edited it to balance out the halves of the show more. So I started with, I think Mando comes in in like episode five of the original season, and it's I think that season is seven episodes. My cut Mm -hmm. was nine episodes, and I started episode one is starts with the Mando stuff ending as he it's basically that fight he has in in uh, he, he has the whole thing where he t- talks to his other Mandalorian buddies, I think. And then there's the whole adventure in like the uh, yeah, there's that whole adventure. And it ends with him. I ended that where he is flying off thinking about Grogu. And I think there's an extra scene in that episode that I put somewhere else. Then episode two was basically the intro of the Boba Fett stuff in the present day material. And I cut together stuff from a couple of episodes just to get a nice like 40 minute continuous chunk of him being a crime lord. Episode three went back to Mando and did the whole plot where he and um, uh, the comedian lady, I forget who her, what her name is, but the oh, Amy, Sedaris. Amy Sedaris. Yeah, yeah. Amy Sedaris uh, are building their new Starfighter. I made that an episode. Then episode four is the giant flashback episode where I put all of Boba's flashbacks in one spot. And it's just, it's the longest one in my cut. It's an hour long, but it's everything in one place. Then you come back to the main Boba Fett story in episode five. Then I think I put all of the Grogu, Ahsoka, Luke stuff in one episode, episode six. So that was focused in one place. Then went back to Boba. Uh, Episode eight is one last Mando solo episode. I think that's the one where he winds up working with Cobb Vance, the Timothy Mm Oliphant character. And then episode nine is just the same version of episode seven it, it comes back together i did not do any special edits to that one other than changing the titles around um because i made it all mandalorian titled uh, and put that theme in there at the beginning so that was how i re-edited it and i thought it worked a lot better that way but yeah yeah that makes sense to me because i think one of the key things is the flashback should be one thing like yes. it's because the show is not does not feel designed for a parallel story. It's not like oh, the episode has one ongoing plot line in the present day about Boba doing his crime lord stuff, and then it has another ongoing plot line in the past with the Tusken Raiders that there's some sort of intersection or thematic coherency there. No, it's just like, here's a scene of him being a crime boss, or here's a couple of scenes of that, and then here's 30 minutes of him with the Tusken Raiders. It's like, well, that's a fucking insane way to structure an episode. Um, And it doesn't feel like, like it doesn't feel in some ways that it was intended or like written that way. Originally, it feels like they wrote a bunch of scenes of him with the Tusken Raiders. And then they're like, well, how do we then fit this into other episodes where he is also doing the crime boss stuff? Um, So it's, it's a frustrating show. 
Yeah, and that's why I did it that way was because I think when you have, because I did, I think the first episode two is like all of Boba's stuff from episode one minus the flashbacks and some of episode two. And I think I even went into a little bit of three because I edited a lot of stuff together because I wanted to have, let's just have a concentrated burst of him in the present day because you can't get into the present day story Mm -hmm. in the original edit because you're never in it long enough. So that was my goal there. And then with the flashbacks, it has the exact same problem. You're never in them long enough to care. So let's do one story where the climax is the big train heist of that episode in my edit. Uh, and it works a lot. It's just all of it works a lot better that way. Um, and not to like toot my own horn. I don't think any of this is like editorial brilliance. It's just if to me it was like very common sense how you would structure a season and then have it be a little more Mandalorian centric because this is essentially a season of the Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it is. It is weird, you know. It's just a weird show. It's a frustrating show to watch, um, because of that. Because so many of the individual pieces are good, um, you know. Cad Bane shows up. Um, who he's a Clone Wars character. He's the bounty hunter dude who comes in at the end, and I enjoyed that. Like, I think in context that works better for me within like kind of how I heard it, and like I, I, I was, I was sort of hesitant about the idea of them bringing Cad Bane into this Boba Fett show. Um, because there is a lot of history between those two characters, but it seemed weird to me to try to pay it off in live action. Um, and I still, there's a part of me with that, that I kind of just wish this, if they were going to do the Cad Bane stuff and quote unquote, kill off Cad Bane, even though they leave a hook that that character very easily could be alive. Um, but, um, if they're going to do that, I kind of still wish it was in an animated show, but they pull that stuff off pretty well. You know, Timothy Oliphant is there and he's just playing Space Railing Givens again. And that's like, I'm 100% here for that. Um, so, you know, all those individual pieces are great. There's a fucking scene where Boba Fett riding a Rancor fights like giant war droids. That's rules. Like all that stuff is so cool. But it is also in an hour long finale that most of that hour is watching a bunch of characters, most of whom you don't care about, like the mods that apparently are a thing. Apparently 1960s British mods are just hanging out on Tatooine. And it's like weird. And I don't think they pull off that concept at all, but it's just them being pinned down for most of that episode. Um, So it's like, there's like that finale probably could have been cut down in like half and it would have worked better. Um, So it's got a lot of those issues, but a lot of the stuff I liked about it, I was able to enjoy it overall. Um, But then that leads into Mandalorian season three, which I think is fucking great. Like, I think it is as good, if not even maybe better to me than the other Mandalorian seasons. It is a bit different. Um, It is definitely less of the like, here's like the sort of case of the week kind of thing or like bounty hunt of the week, which is, you know, very much what season one and two Mandalorian were, was every episode, every week was a brand new episode in a different location and all that kind of stuff with exception of maybe like a two part finale. Um, Season three is much better broader in its focus even though it does still boil down into an episodic show it's not a thing where it's like super heavily serialized but the season three is more about mandalorian and grogu um hooking up with the two sort of different mandalorian factions we have met in the two seasons the sort of remnants of the death watch led by the armorer lady from season one who also is in boba fett and then um, Bo-Katan, the, you know, former queen of Mandalore, um, or slash princess of Mandalore, who was in Star Wars The Clone Wars, was in Star Wars Rebels, and then in season two of Mandalorian, played by Katie Sackhoff, who also voiced her in the cartoons, which is still, like, very surreal. <laughs> you just like how much that character feels like she just walked, walked out of those animated shows on screen. 
Um, and Bo-Katan, after episode two or so, effectively becomes like a co-lead in the show. For the entire second half of the show, it's like her and Mando and Grogu together going around trying to bring the Mandalorians together to go t- take back Mandalore, which is what the finale arc is about, is about them going to Mandalore and trying to sort of reclaim it from um, an Imperial base that is still on there from the Imperial Remnant. So it is a show that I think, particularly if you are invested in the broader Star Wars universe, if you've watched some of those cartoons like Clone Wars and Rebels, um, if you liked the Mandalore arcs in those shows, like this is extremely satisfying on that level. I think it's good on its own just as a show, but it does have such a cool perspective on the broader Star Wars universe. Um, in such a way that it makes it very frustrating to remember that the sequel trilogy exists because their conception of what the New Republic is like at this point, how the Imperial Remnant operates is really fascinating because as Mandalorian is doing this, right, as Mandalore, is, or sorry, as Mando is getting involved in this bigger political thing by working with these Mandalorian factions, it makes sense, I think, naturally for the show's view to expand out into how does this impact the galaxy at large and like what is going on out there there you have this sort of small cast of like sort of side characters that we've seen in the mandalorian seasons that get a little bit more playtime here like there's that one um sort of older asian guy with a beard who's one of the new republic pilots who popped up in season one and two and he's in this a little bit more um you have the clone doctor who is in seasons one and two for the empire um, who's doing the experiments on Grogu, um, and he has a little bit more playtime. I mean, he basically has an episode in this that might be my favorite episode of the show. Um, and so it gives you this insight into the struggles that the New Republic has in trying to find its footing and establish itself as it has very little control over what's going on in the Outer Rim, which is where all the Mandalorian stuff takes place. That's like, you know, the Wild West, the frontier of the galaxy. Um, so that's where Mando's, like dealing with the Imperial remnants and all that, that is because the New Republic does not have the reach yet to be able to govern those areas because it is having to pick itself up from all the pieces left over from the Empire they just toppled and then also what is left of the Old Republic that was there before them. And I think that stuff and how it manifests and how it intersects with the Mandalorian's sort of goal of establishing themselves once again as like an independent society and an independent culture on their own home world um, that is separate from the New Republic and some of the other places on the Outer Rim that are also looking to establish themselves as their own independent worlds with their own independently run governments. I think all that stuff just like tickles my Star Wars heart that I like that sort of bigger galactic politics stuff so much. And I think Mandalorian Season 3 handles it incredibly well. Episode three of the show is one that is set almost entirely on Coruscant, and it is from the perspective of the clone doctor guy who has been captured by the New Republic, and he is in an amnesty program, you know, like with echoes of some things that happened to like high-ranking Nazis from World War II and stuff like that, Um, and him struggling to sort of find his place of wanting to because he was never an imperial believer he just cared about his research and him wanting to contribute to the new republic while also wanting to advance his own research but his cloning research is illegal the new republic is not interested in pursuing that um and like seeing this sort of person struggling in that context and what happens to him gives you just such an insight into the political state of what it is like to live 
in the galaxy and especially around like Coruscant in the core worlds, which we have not seen in fucking forever in Star Wars. It has been so long since they dramatized anything on Coruscant. Um, even Rebels almost never really touches any of the Coruscant stuff. And it's so cool to see that planet again because Coruscant's one of the most interesting planets and seeing everything they do there with this decadent society that in many ways is sort of untouched by all this bullshit because it, the people who live at the top of Coruscant are the like elites of society and like the, all these like old money people who have weathered the storm of they saw the old Republic fall. They saw the empire come up. They saw the empire fall and the new Republic come up. But because of their wealth, like it has never affected them personally. And you get tastes of that throughout that episode that I think is incredibly evocative. Um, and so all of that stuff, I just find so fascinating. And I loved about Mandalorian season three, but then it also has, um, more of your sort of classic Mandalorian stuff. I think the story arc with, um, Mando and Grogu is really compelling. I think they actually pull off a thing that's awkward about the Boba Fett thing of them, him having to leave Grogu and then Grogu coming back. But so much Mandalorian season three is that Grogu has made the choice to become a Mandalorian. Like he has chosen to walk away from the life of a Jedi and to join Mando, not just as like a buddy, but as his adopted son and to be like brought into that culture as well. And so that I think gives it a much clearer vision and purpose that makes the kind of like bait and switch they pulled with the end of season two feel a lot more narratively justified. Uh, so all of that, and I think the interaction between Mando and Grogu and Bo-Katan, all that stuff rules. And then the action is the best the show has ever had. There are some fucking space fights in this show that are like some of the best space battles you will see in any Star Wars stuff, particularly live action. They made the choice in Boba Fett to give Mando a Naboo Starfighter as his, like a souped up version of the Naboo Starfighter from Episode 1 as his new ship. And that has paid off so much because there are so many things you can do with that much sleeker starfighter design that the much bigger kind of like suv and space thing that he had before couldn't really pull off and here there's just some really frenetic just masterfully executed dogfight sequences in space um with him and bo-katan and some of the mandalorian fleet that just absolutely kick ass um including there's also then some like sort of grounded fight scenes particularly in the last episode that also are the best action that they've ever done so I was honestly kind of perplexed after watching Mandalorian season three, why it had as muted a reception as it did, because I think it's a fucking great season. If you like Mandalorian, um, you have to watch Book of Boba Fett and that's more up and down, but Mandalorian season three, I think it's fucking two thumbs up. I love the shit out of that show. That's awesome. I, I look forward to catching up with it at some point. Um, you know, that's good to hear because I trust your word on this more than anyone else's because you and I are very in lockstep on on these this kind of side of the Star Wars universe. So that's cool to hear. I think I do think part of it is just I think in this day and age, there's this weird thing of like, we're going to make seasons that are only eight episodes long and we're going to do them three years apart. And I understand it is hard to make TV. Uh, you're not going to retain an audience that way. I don't really care what your show is. It's a dumb way to make TV. That's not. You can't go from a model where we once had TV on basically year-round with a break in the summer and people knew when shows would air to maybe in three to five years there will be more and it'll be around sometime. But also there's a spinoff you have to catch up on. It's all very, you know, it was a dumb way for Disney to lay this whole thing out. And I understand, again, that it is uh, a tall order and the I think the pandemic impacted this as well. Although, I don't know how much because the pandemic, like, 
was around the time Mandalorian season two was airing. So their production mm-hmm. kind of missed that shutdown. So who the hell knows? It was weird, but I am looking forward to catching up on that at some point because that does sound good. And, uh, you know, I did see some good Grogu gifts online and I always like seeing Grogu. Oh, there's some fucking killer Grogu stuff. Um, just because, like, Grogu now, you know, he's remembered more of his Jedi stuff, so he's able to be more active. Um, so, he, you know, there's some good jumping around. It gives you a vision of, like, an alternate version of the Yoda stuff we got in the prequels where, you know, when they went full CG Yoda of, like, what if you what if you had, like, done a blend? Like, what if it had been some puppets being fucking just chucked around, but then also doing <laughs> CG puppets, but making them... Or the, a CG character, but making him look like a puppet? But he's, like, flying all over the place. Um, and I think they just sort of execute on making Grogu acrobatic in the way that Yoda was, while I think making it for the people who just couldn't buy that because they didn't like how CG it was... Um, making it feel more naturally like the way you kind of expect this character to move because you understand fundamentally it's underneath it all you want that character to be a puppet Um, and I think that they just like really threaded that needle very cleanly with the way that Grogu is in this show yeah that's great and I, I guess also you were talking about all the like way they treat the New Republic and I know of course the next show we have coming up is Dave Filoni's Ahsoka show mm-hmm. where we're going to bring in Thrawn and all of that do you think behind the scenes, quietly, like they're never going to say this in reality, that Dave Filoni and, and uh, John Favreau are very much working on the assumption that the sequels don't exist and they just are ignoring that? <laughs> I, I, I would hope so, honestly. Like, that was like one of the biggest bummers I had was I watched episode three of Mandalorian season three, which again, which is the one that's like almost entirely on Coruscant. Mando's only in like the last five minutes of that. I think purely just so that they could be like, Okay, he is in it. He is like, it is still the Mandalorian. Don't worry. Like, you know, the main characters are still technically in this episode, but it's so much an episode about this other character living on Coruscant. And then I got to the end of it. I was like, God, that was so good. I've been waiting for something set post Return of the Jedi to do this for so long um, to give me the same feeling of like the bigger picture Star Wars stuff that I get when I watch a lot of the Dave Filoni stuff like Clone Wars and, and the prequels um, related stuff and Rebels all deals with that so well. And then I remembered, oh, fuck, they blew up Coruscant in Force Awakens. Yep. That J.J. Abrams, you motherfucker. Like, for just a cheap little fucking moment, you blow up one of the most interesting planets in the Star Wars universe that, like, is there so much rich material to be mined from using it as a location? And Mandalorian Season 3 uses it so well and remembering that they just got blown up on a whim in fucking Force Awakens is the fucking stupidest shit that anyone has done with Star Wars. Just like taking so many stories you could tell and just throwing them out the window for no good reason. Yeah, I, you know, they're apparently, I don't know if this is ever going to actually happen because they announced this without a writer or director or anything, but they did announce they're doing a Ray movie set after Rise of Skywalker and I think that movie should be Ray waking up at the beginning of Force Awakens having had a really weird three-part dream and then uh, just new story. It's Daisy Ridley, effectively a new character to new continuity uh, and have Dave Filoni write it. <laughs> yeah, she she wakes up and then uh, Mando and Grogu walk into her little hut or whatever yes. um, on a job and they bring her along. Like that's how that should fucking go. 
Yeah, because I'm absolutely up for more Daisy Ridley in Star Wars. Nothing that she was connected to in Star Wars I ever need to see again, um, other than maybe some of those actors. But yeah, boo-hoo, boo-hoo boy. Anyway, uh, yeah. And is uh, Bad Batch Season 2 good? Yeah, I'm I'm like five or six episodes in. It's great. Um, yeah, uh, it has some... There's, there's an episode um, that I just watched that is so good um that that it's almost kind of like that episode three thing of where it doesn't even star the main characters but it has um crosshair who was the villain bad batch season one and he's with commander cody who is one of the main clones from clone wars as well as he was like the clone general that worked with obi-wan um that episode fucking rules uh it is so good so yeah bad batch continues to be very good It, it is just like shocking how good these cg shows look these days you know, they've done with like Bad Batch, they've done the Tales of the Jedi mini season they did a while ago um, that has a bunch of like little one-off shorts that is also fucking so good in the, the final season of Clone Wars that they did. Um, it is just incredible. If you go back and look at how Clone Wars season one or the Clone Wars movie looked in 2008 and you compare it with like these episodes of Bad Batch, it is fucking insane how gorgeous this show is. Um, so I'm very excited to, to continue to watch that because um, this, this, this is like in many ways, this is like almost what Star Wars is to me now is it's an animated series, a CG animated series that also has some live action shit. Like in some ways, it is like my framework over the years has like so shifted to where the animated stuff is so good and so consistently good has been so consistently good for like 15 years now that it's like, no, this is just sort of the main franchise. And then you get some cool movies with it too. I mean, it was for a long time before Disney bought it, but after the prequels, Mm -hmm. that was the main way star Wars stories were coming out for a large audience was clone wars and rebels. And then that at the end, the Disney stuff came in and, and then when Disney fucked up the movies and moved everything to Disney Plus, they basically just brought Dave Filoni and were like, continue all that in live action. And he did with John yeah. Favreau. So, yeah. Um, can I talk about some good TV I've been watching? Yes. I started this last week. Well, let me back up. There, You guys probably have heard of the FX series Justified. Uh, this is the famous show starring Timothy Oliphant, and there is a sequel series coming out this summer on FX uh, called Justified City Primeval, which is based on a book by the guy who came up with Raylan Givens, Elmore Leonard. It's not a Raylan Givens book, but they're putting him in the story. Smart thing to do. That is coming out this summer, and we got our first teaser for it. The teaser is just Timothy Oliphant walking down uh-huh. the street. And his hat blows in the wind and he picks up the hat, dusts it off and puts it on and then goes back to walking down the street. And I saw that on Twitter and I went, man, Tim Oliphant looks good in that hat. Uh I've never seen Justified. And I was like in between. I was like, I need a new show to watch that's like not anime, not for work, just for me, for fun. And I'm like, oh, fuck it. I have Hulu. I have all that FX stuff. I've wanted to see this show for years. I love Timothy Oliphant, but I've never seen the thing he is most famous for. Let's do it. Uh, and I started, and I've been... Just all my free time has either been that or Zelda, or both at the same time, because Zelda is on Switch, and I can play it while watching Justified. Uh, and I am through season one. I'm three episodes into season two. Uh, holy shit, Sean. This is, this is old-ass news, because this show is like 12 years old now. But man, that's a good show. Yeah, Justified fucking rules. If people don't remember, it was one of my top 10 TV shows of all time um, because it is it is so fucking good. And it's like it's so good in a way that like I think it just catches you off guard because you even yes. like knowing that it's good, you hear it's good. And then you watch it. And you're like, 
Oh, this is this is this is really fucking good. Uh, yeah, it yeah. is. It is a fucking amazing show. I'm very happy you're you're finally watching it. It's amazing, and and I mean, season one is the one that I think is pretty widely considered like the weakest of the six yeah. seasons, and that it takes. And I will say, it absolutely takes a leap. So the second, the first episode of season two is the best episode I've seen so far. It because that's the one where you meet Mags Bennett, Margot Martindale. Mm-hmm. You meet her son, played by Jeremy Davies. You meet the Caitlin Deaver character, who I did not realize. I had to do some googling because Caitlin Deaver, she plays Loretta McCready, and she's like twelve in that show. Yeah. But she still looks 12 today. Um, she was in Booksmart a couple years ago playing a teenager. And I'm like, oh, she is just eternally youthful, even though this show is like 12 years old. I had I did not think the timeline would have worked out for her to have been on that show. But anyway, that confused me for a second. Because I was like, this, this is like her sister? This is weird. But anyway, you meet all those characters, in, and they're all tied into this one story. And I think the show just, you can tell it's one of those shows that they took a look at everything that worked and didn't work in season one. And then tightened it over the break. Brought in a just giant carriage of character actors and went, let's go to town. And season two just is off to the races and is phenomenal so far. Uh, but anyway, even season one, I think, even in the, the period of the show where it's kind of finding itself is fantastic. I went back and listened. This was episode 300 where we did our top 10 TV shows and you had it at number six or five or something like that. And I listened to that segment again and, and everything you talked about is true, including that it's very much a Trojan horse show because it looks like... What I would say it looks like on the surface in the early going is sort of the USA Network model of uh-huh. like crime shows with a little bit of some kind of twist or flavor on them, like the psych or suits or whatever, right? Um, and in fact, I even think you've got like the uh, the other deputies where that Raylan works with, Tim and Rachel, who are in the main credits but never have anything to do. Um, basically look like they would be the leads on the USA version of Justified, like your U.S. Marshall uh-huh. show. Um, that's who they are. But no, your lead of this show is Raylan Givens, played by Timothy Oliphant. And immediately what makes the show so striking is that this show couldn't possibly exist with any other actor. I'm always fascinated by things like this, where like, there just is no other, there's no other period in time they could have made this and there's no other actor you could have made it with because the whole thing about Justified is that it is modern day America, it's modern day America South um, with a guy at the center of it who fancies himself an old fashioned, you know, six shooter cowboy, but is also a man of the present and the only person on earth in all of time and space who can play that blend is Timothy Oliphant where you, mm-hmm. you he walks around with his 10 gallon hat and you believe him. It does not look silly. It is like that is who he is. But you can also believe he is not an anachronism. He is also a human being like in the world who is bemused by the world around him. You can imagine Raylan Givens going and buying his groceries, which I think would actually be a great episode for them to do. He would inevitably wind up shooting someone at the grocery store. Um, and like you can believe him in those two modes. Uh, and it is just, he is such a phenomenal actor. He is so funny. He's also like, it's the reason why I think this performance doesn't get talked about in the same vein as like James Gandolfini or Brian Cranston or name your big, you know, anti-hero of this era of TV is because it's a quieter performance, but like it's quieter in a way that is, I think very, very compelling. He's, he's got chemistry with literally everyone in the show. They run through, I feel like half of all the character actors in Hollywood just in that first season, and he's great with all of them. Um, and it really is just such a cool performance. He's got such an amazing sense of like swagger, but also like, you know, kind of brittle humanity to him. And then everyone around him is great as well. And of course, the real arc of season one is them realizing 
oh god we almost killed off walton goggins yes oh god what did we almost do thank god Raylan didn't shoot him in the head in the pilot so that we could reshoot that enough that it looks like he was alive uh and we can keep walton goggins around and season one is them basically figuring out how much they can do with walton goggins uh and it turns out a lot you can do a lot with walton goggins uh because he's incredible and by the end of that first that first season ends on such a great scene which is uh boyd driving off and Raylan pretending to shoot after him but really letting him go uh and it's just like the show is locked in at that point and i am on board and i i want i want to end this podcast so i can go watch more justified because then i got into season two and met margot martindale mm-hmm. as mags bennett which is a performance i've been hearing about for over 10 years it's this thing that like she was always a beloved character actor as bojack horseman has told us yes yeah, her role as <laughs> character actress margot martindale on that show um but she had a she has had a huge career revival since justified and so i've seen her in a million things since this aired but she is uh, obviously stupendous on the show. Yeah, it is, I think, really fascinating when you think about season one of Justified because it is a show where you can tell they're sort of figuring out how much of this show is a like twist on a police procedural, as you're kind of saying the USA thing, and then how much of it is something different. And I think that is like over the course of season one, they start to sort of n- narrow in on the model that Justified follows from that point forward which is that while, you know, you get little bits and pieces and tastes of Raylan's life as a U.S. Marshal and, you know, some other cases will sometimes get involved in that. Fundamentally, it is a show that is about two characters. It's Raylan Givens and Boyd Crowder, right? Timothy Olyphant's Raylan um, and Walton Goggins' Boyd. And they are both following their own stories that will intersect occasionally, but they're effectively like, you know, parallel plot lines. Um, that are more thematically intertwined. And then there's one season-long villain. And in season one, eventually, you start getting Boyd's dad, who is that character for season one, who is like the big bad that eventually Raylan and Boyd will both have to deal with this character in some way. Um, And so they kind of narrow that focus down into that model. And then that's when season two just sort of hits the ground running with that because they've got all the pieces in place. They know we have struck fucking gold with both of our actors, Tiffany Olfant as Ray Lady, and then this miracle of Walton Goggins as Boyd, who was not originally even meant to be a co-lead, um, who then gets moved to that position for season two. Um, and then, as you say, you've got Mags Bennett, who becomes the big bad for season two. And they hit that structure of let's set up who this like season villain is going to be early, like have this sort of supporting cast around that character um, and, and set up all these story threads so that you get this like really perfect balance of episodic stories that occasionally will involve vague police procedural type structures, but not nearly as heavily as season one. And then the more kind of modern, um, especially at the time when this was not super common for network TV, more modern serialized storytelling format with this sort of like season long villain. But I think the choice also to have season villains and then you've got Boyd as the sort of like, I don't even know if you call him a villain, but this like anti-hero character, maybe more, who is also there as the thread to run through the whole show was one of the smartest things they they did. And the consistency of that format is really sort of vital to how Justified is able to keep itself going and reinventing itself as it goes along with um, its main cast. But yeah, it is, it is just an all time great show. People have not watched justified. It is, it is like very good in some like more high minded ways in terms of like, I think it's got really smart politics and themes about um, the, the South. This is like Kentucky specifically 
um, in modern America. This is pre-Trumpism is when Justified is being made, but it very much has its sort of finger on the pulse of the sort of like built-in isolationism and resentment that those communities feel towards like the broader modern American society um, that leads to Trumpism. Um, and so it deals with all that stuff and it's fucking great. It is also just the most eminently entertaining TV show you can fucking watch because it yeah. also is Raylan Givens walking into a room and, you know, the thing you're saying of like, you couldn't have any other character do this. The Mount, you just believe Timothy Oliphant when he like says like, man, you take one more step and I'm going to fucking cheat you. And the guy takes a step and he just puts a bullet in his heart, right? Like, that's like the character he is. Or the first scene of the show, which is amazing, of how he ends up in Kentucky, because Raylan's originally posted in Miami, um, is there's some sort of crime boss. They have some sort of pre-existing relationship. He comes in and he's like, I'm going to give you five minutes or whatever it is to get out of town. Um, they have this conversation and he starts counting down. Um, it's like, you got 30 seconds left. Um, and this mob boss being like, what the fuck? is this dude's deal because it's because everyone else is acting like they're just in nor the normal world that we live in. And then this dude who's walked out of a fucking Clint Eastwood Western, um, just sits down and says, if you don't get out of town by high noon, I'm going to put a bullet through your heart. And you're like, this dude's 100% serious about everything that he's doing right now. That hat, all of it is like 100%. Um, and that there's no actor that could pull that off other than Timothy Oliphant. It is like the most fun shit to watch in the world. It's amazing. He's so funny. That is like the big revelation because I mean, I've seen him in Deadwood also, and I would not say he is a source of humor in Deadwood. No. Uh, Seth Bullock is a much more dour character. Raylan is just, he's not making jokes, but he's very wry. He's uh -huh. very bemused by the people around him. He very rarely gets like mad at the criminals he's chasing. He has actually a pretty good rapport with everyone. And so he's just very funny. Uh, it is like the most charismatic fucking performance I've ever seen. Um, he he looks real good in that hat. I don't, yeah. you know, just if uh, on the on my on the sexuality spectrum, the Kinsey scale. If there's just a Timothy Oliphant option, that's me. Put me right there, because uh, God, I I want to be him. I love him. Uh, he's great. But no, it's it's fantastic. And, you know, just watching him have to deal with humanity is great. the The first season also because like it's so committed to the idea that. While it does do the police procedural thing, it is also aware of the reality that you can't just go around shooting people <laughs> indiscriminately as a law enforcement officer. Usually, uh, <laughs> local police can now, um, but I guess the marshal service has a higher uh, standard. Uh, and so it is this, the first season is very much to me a comedy about a man who is being told and wants to stop shooting people, but keeps having to shoot people. Uh, and it is funny as you keep going, Raylan just being like, God damn it, I had to do it again. Uh, because he keeps getting put in these ridiculous uh, neo-Western situations, and it's hilarious. I think Raylan puts himself in those situations, man. He, he It's like that whole <laughs> yes. show is like, how can Raylan figure out a way to be justified in shooting this motherfucker? Like, that's so much of that show is like, how do I how do I work this in such a way? Because cause while Raylan is never outwardly angry, or he's very rarely outwardly angry, I think he is inside. He is a, like, deeply fucked up angry person um that's like, the end of the pilot is his wife telling him that yeah yeah and, and you get that when you like get more of his dad because have you met arlo his dad yet i don't remember season season one. he's a big part of season one yeah okay well, yeah, season one yeah. ends with arlo almost getting him killed and him shooting his dad in the arm for it which is great right. <laughs> yes yeah. yeah so like you get when you get more and more arlo and just see more of raylan's past i think you get that sense of like okay this is why 
this dude is the way that he is. Um, and like what whatever he's got deep down inside that he needs to express by being justified in shooting people. Like, uh, yeah, a lot of it comes from where he grew up. Um, and yeah. you know, because the opening of that show is that he does not want to go to Kentucky. That is the last, he does not want to go home. This is the last fucking place he wants to be. He does not want to dig up any of this shit. Um, and he is being sent there and having to deal with seeing all of his old buddies he fucking mind coal with being neo-Nazis and all that nonsense. Uh, it's fucking great. And also just like the Walton Goggins of it all. Because season one, after the first episode is based on an Elmore Leonard story where Boyd Crowder very definitively dies at the end. Um, but they expanded it here because Walton Goggins is so good. And basically his character, we meet him, Boyd Crowder is working with neo-Nazis, but we realize he has no actual like interest in the ideology. He's doing it because they're easy marks and he can get them mm -hmm. to do stuff for him. Um, and then he starts, he, he in prison becomes this like born again Christian and builds this new following of people who are following his Christian teachings. And so the whole mystery of season one is how sincere is Boyd Crowder? And Walton Goggins is the only actor who could pull this off where I have no fucking idea and no yes. one has any fucking idea. It's impossible to tell because it's in every syllable he says, it sounds both like simpering nonsense and also completely sincere. And I actually love where season one ends up with it, which is it's kind of both. Uh, and that's who this character is. And so then you go into season two with him very adrift uh, and no one believing him when he says anything, but he doesn't, he actually is not being duplicitous anymore. It's very interesting. He's, he's a great character. And again, like no one else could play that part. Yeah. Yeah. It is like, it is like the, secret weapon of justified is is boyd um and, and yeah all that of where because that just like continues through of where like how much of his own bullshit is boyd eating right like how much does he understand he's bullshitting how much is he really bullshitting um and then how much can you see through as the audience like i think that's like a big game you play with that boyd characters like what is going on underneath all of that because yeah he is a like born con man and outlaw um and it's like how much of his own shit does he even understand yeah so i know this is a little out of date us talking about this old tv show but it's actually kind of in date because it is coming back are you excited for this revival yes. season they're doing yes uh, i yeah i watched that um the teaser they did and then uh i will say that if you logged into my youtube account you would see a lot of justified clips popping up in the <laughs> recommendations because that is after i watched that teaser that like became a thing it was like i'm just gonna here let me watch like this like 45 minute compilation of all the like quick draws in justified <laughs> um and all that kind of shit um and yeah that's uh so that has been that has been what i've been doing also for the past couple of weeks yeah, it's cool. It's, uh, you know, the other impetus for me on this was just the reason I was thinking about Justified more was also I'm watching the show Silo on Apple TV Plus, which is what Graham Yost, who was the showrunner on Justified, is making right now. That's his new show. Um, and he's, he's actually not involved in the Justified sequel. It's other people who were involved with the show. It's not like complete newcomers. But Graham Yost was busy with this other show. And it's also very good. But that was just I would I would see Graham Yost's name on it and be like, I know that name from Justified, which is a show made by people with names that sound like they're from the Old West, like Graham uh -huh. Yost, Tim Oliphant, Walton Goggins. I, yeah. Just the names of everyone involved in just Elmore Leonard. It's amazing. The, these people were destined to make that show. It's great. It took me a long time to learn that Walton, that that was his name was Walton Goggins and that wasn't the name of a character he played because it so <laughs> sounds like it would be some scumbag in an old like John Wayne Western is Walton Goggins. Um, yeah, it's such a good name. 
He is Walton Sanders Goggins Jr. Uh, that, that was his daddy's name, which is uh, so fantastic. Uh, he was born in Birmingham, Alabama. That, yep, tracks. Yep. <laughs> Love him. No, this is great. And yeah, I, uh, I've never read any Elmore Leonard, but I, I've always wanted to because everything I've seen based on Elmore Leonard... I fucking love like mm-hmm. the best Quentin Tarantino movie is Jackie Brown, which is based on rum punch three ten to Yuma in either version is great. Justified is great. And from what I can tell has that voice down pat. So I did actually get a collection of his Westerns and I was going to read some of those cause I've always wanted to read like the original three ten to Yuma and stuff. But yeah, anyway, um, justified's good. I'm sure I'll say more about it in the future. Uh, yeah. And then my last piece of stuff is kind of our little topic portion we need to do today, which is, uh, a video game that you guys might have heard of. So let's talk yeah. about it. Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. I'll give you all a moment in case you don't want any spoilers. I'm not going to go like out of my way to spoil surprises, but I'm also not going to inhibit myself. It's been a week since it came out. I'll talk about my experiences with it. Uh, so that's why we're saving this for the end, though, in case you don't want to know anything. Because this is a game that like Nintendo actually did a very good job not revealing anything about this game. It is full of surprises. Uh, but yeah, I want to talk about this game, which has been huge. It sold 10 million copies in its first weekend, which... If you do the math, it's a $70 game, $700 million. That's really close to the record set by GTA V that has stood for 10 years now, um, which was $800 million in its opening weekend. Uh, they didn't break it out by copies. They just gave the dollar amount. But yeah, anyway, obviously everyone in the fucking world is playing this game. But it is incredible. I We, we thought about doing a little segment last week to like get a weekly stuff podcast out, but I'd only been playing it for two days. And I just genuinely don't know what I would have said about it. I was enjoying it, but I did not have my head around it. And I think so now a week and a couple days later, I've played a lot of it. I still don't know if I would say I have my head around what this game is. It's really, really big and weird and I love it. But it is a very surprising game. Because on one level, it is an extremely direct sequel to Breath of the Wild. It obviously reuses the basic Hyrule map. The controls are the same. The combat is the same. It has similar music. Obviously, the graphics are very similar. Uh, All of that stuff is taken from Breath of the Wild. But on the other hand, it is like a radically different sequel um, and a radically evolved sequel where the powers you have as Link are just extremely different. Um, The world is much bigger in ways that are very surprising. It is effectively three times the size of Breath of the Wild because you have the main Hyrule that you had last time, although with lots and lots and lots of changes and surprises around it. And then you have the sky area, which we saw a little bit of in the marketing, but is very robust. And then you have an entire underground that is literally the size of the main Hyrule map itself and is an enormous like cave of surprises as well. Um, So it is a much bigger game. It has a somewhat similar structure in that once you are dropped in Hyrule, you have four main objectives, but there are also way more objectives around that. The story is much more built out, and it does not do the thing where, like, Ganon is in the center of the map and you know where to go fight him. Breath of the Wild, you can—the reason why that's a speedrunning favorite is you know— 
go. Ganon is right over there. When you're ready, you go fight him. That was the whole thing with Breath of the Wild. Uh, I was talking to my brother the other night who's played even more of this than I have, and we were both saying, I, well, I don't know what that thing is, and I don't know what the end of Tears of the Kingdom is, because there is, that is not indicated anywhere. Um, the world is much more lively um, in terms of like how populated it is and sort of the people and the tasks and the things going on there. It has like 10 more sort of currencies and exchange systems going on. It's, it's a really interesting game because it is like on one level this very basic iterative sequel and it is on this other level this massive explosion of creativity on top of the bones of this you know beloved game from several years ago. And it's really fascinating because I think it would... I know, Sean, you are one of the people who was less enamored with Breath of the Wild, but it would be accurate to say in general that is one of the most like beloved and acclaimed games of all time. Um, and obviously has had an immense influence on games over the last six years. But what is part of what is so surreal about Tears of the Kingdom is that even if you, like me, really loved Breath of the Wild, it is so relentless in how much I think it improves and expands upon that first game that it kind of like rewires your brain a little bit to like to the degree where I don't know if you could even go back and play Breath of the Wild after this because it is such a radical expansion of what that game was doing and I think in many ways a radical improvement in a lot of places uh, where it feels like the, the dev team had a really clear sense of what they thought worked and what they thought needed expansion. Um, and it is this meticulous, clockwork, complicated, but also freeing expanded sequel that is uh, not quite analogous to any other sequel I could name. This is not, with Jedi Survivor, it sounds like there's the very easy Assassin's Creed 2 metaphor you can use. Um, I don't know what metaphor I would use for Tears of the Kingdom. I've never really played anything quite like it. And even now, having been playing it for a solid week, it is still so big and open and free that it can be a little daunting just to sit down and choose what to do next with it. Not in like the Ubisoft, oh my god, my checklist is really long kind of way, but just in the, the world is so big, and the the ways you have to interact with that world are so vast and complicated and multi-layered that there is a level of like player freedom here that is kind of radical, I think. Um, it's a fascinating game. Yes, this is also the part, Jonathan, where I have to say, I have also been playing this game. I did not buy a Switch, but I have been playing this game. And we, you could maybe read between certain lines. If you have listened to our last episode of Japanimation Station, um, you maybe know certain certain things are possible. Um, but yeah, so I have I've not put a lot of time into Tears of the Kingdom, um, but I have been playing it using a personal computer, let's say. Um, to check this game out. And it is so because I really wanted to play it partially just to see as someone to be able to talk about it on the podcast as someone who did not like Breath of the Wild. What is Tears of the Kingdom like from that perspective? And while I'm not nearly far enough into I wanted like to give a definitive answer because I enjoyed Breath of the Wild for the first 10 or so hours. It was after that point that I felt like the game became very bland to me. Tears of the Kingdom so far, I've I'm only been like kind of exploring that first area you come into after the tutorial. So I've not gone into any like the main areas or whatever. I'm like heading off towards wherever the Rito village is because they a lot of people while you, they say you can go wherever you want. A lot of people mention that Rito village. So I'm like, I should probably go over there. Um, and that and, is the first big one I did as well. And it is a good it's, it's an amazing stretch of game. 
Uh, but it is the first of the four big temples you have, basically. Yeah, and and they, yeah. I think they tell you to go there for a reason. Yeah, and I have I have not seen any of that stuff yet, so like I can't speak to that. But of the stuff I have played, I think I'm enjoying this a lot more, especially like knowing that I'm going in having like a certain understanding about the things I did not like about Breath of the Wild. And a lot of those things are things that Tears of the Kingdom improve. Some of them aren't, you know, like the combat in terms of the swing, the sword stuff, that stuff I still think is bad. Um, and it's it's like identical to what it was um, in terms of, you know, you still have your flurry rush move, which is ridiculously overpowered. Like a lot of that kind of stuff is still there. I think the feel of the combat feels bad to me when you're using your sword. But um, like... In some ways, I actually would use the Assassin's Creed 2 parallel for this because it feels like a game from the perspective of someone who did not particularly like Breath of the Wild overall. It feels like a game that understood the problems that Breath of the Wild had really well and is like finding ways to deal with those. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, the game has reorganized its whole conception of the powers that Link has, which in that first game, you had a couple, like the stasis one, that were really cool. And you had a bunch that felt like like the ice one, and you had the bombs that felt like are not that interesting. Like, they're not on that level. Like, they're not doing anything that interesting. Um, they feel, like, very functional. And um, in Tears of the Kingdom... Like, fundamentally, it has kind of one main power. It's got that Ascend one, but that's, a you know, kind of a practical tool. And it sort of splits its main power into that Fusion thing to make it more convenient. But they could have done Fusion with Ultra Hand if they had really wanted to. Fundamentally, this game is like, what if you just made the power that Link has Gary's mod or, like, Besiege <laughs> or any kind of, like, Steam PC physics sandbox game that in those contexts don't have, like, a story. They don't have, like, a big explorative exploration world. They are just, here's, like, a maybe a scenario, and here are all the tools you can use to create a contraption or to set up a Rube Goldberg machine and play with the physics to complete this scenario or puzzle or something that's purely what those kinds of games are um and it feels like they understood that the sandboxy stuff in breath of the wild was the stuff that made it unique um in that like the way that fire creates like gusts of wind that you can ride your paraglider on and that the physics of objects affect other things in the world you can cut down the trees you can like and use that as like a raft because it can be on wood and all that kind of stuff like that was something that breath of the wild did that other games did not do but breath of the wild didn't leverage that in a direct way to like ask the player to do stuff with it. It left it there to be like, things can happen with these systems. If you really want to push on them, interesting things can occur. But I never felt like Breath of the Wild created scenarios specifically that made interesting things happen in the sandbox. You had to intentionally try to set up interesting things in the sandbox. And that was my part of my problem with that game is I got bored of doing that because that just is asking a lot of the player to constantly be doing that all the time when maybe I want to be focusing on something else. I want to be engaging in the story or the exploration and stuff. And I don't want to be like spending 15 minutes setting up a physics-y thing outside this Bacoblin camp to like do all that shit, right? And I think Tears of the Kingdom by saying, well, let's just like put that directly into the hands of the player. Let's let them pick up, manipulate objects, stick objects together, and then have various different things like fans and like flame emitters and all the and like sails and those kinds of things that like 
interact with the physics in the sandbox elements and give the player ability to put all those things together and play with them directly rather than having it be this kind of like extra thing on the side almost where it kind of felt like the sandbox was something you didn't have direct access to in breath of the wild it's something you sort of tried to influence and see the effects of here they just give you the tools to directly play with that sandbox and I think that is a massive improvement that I think makes it much more accessible to the player. And then it also means that the scenarios and the puzzles and the open world things that they set up take direct advantage of that design, not the combat and not like the other things that Breath of the Wild did that, that were not, I think, particularly interesting. Um, and so most of the puzzles I've been doing have felt much more interesting to me. I've run into open world combat scenarios where the sandbox became relevant in a way it never felt to me in Breath of the Wild. And so that immediately feels like a really substantial improvement. And then also another thing that I think is a big improvement, it doesn't fix all my problems with the weapon system, but with the weapon system, the fuse thing creates an in-game economy that makes the like disposability of the weapons feel like reasonable to me or like that makes a gameplay sense in a way in Breath of the Wild it just felt like a nuisance and you were just dealing with the having your pockets full with random weapons that you didn't give a shit about and you're constantly like opening chests and not being able to take the weapon in there because it's like well I've already full of weapons and I don't need it and it done none of the weapons mattered none of them were interesting it was just like this sort of like busy work that the game made you do to deal with menus all the time with your weapon management. Here, you still have some of that busy work. I still think it's deflating to open a chest that you fought a camp for and there's a weapon in there that you just you can't use because it's bad and you just like close that chest and walk away. I wish that they put some stuff in to fix some of those problems, like be able to break weapons down for resources or something. But like you can take the things you get from killing monsters stick those onto the weapons you have to make better weapons, the weapons that are both directly better and that they do more damage and also weapons that have different effects. And like the different parts can have different impacts, like a lizard tail on a sword will increase the range because it'll slap out like a whip. Um, and that creates a very direct reason to engage with the combat. It creates a reward structure that makes the weapons much more interesting. It creates a certain attachment to the weapons because you made them, which makes it more compelling when you're like, well, got to throw this one. Like it's, it's run its course, got to throw it in this monster's face and like move on to something else. And that to me has like found a like purpose for a system in Breath of the Wild that existed that didn't have a meaningful purpose to me. It felt like it was there because like that's the way that some of its inspirations like Minecraft function, um, but it didn't find ways in the combat sandbox and the broader economy of the game to make the weapons feel interesting or like compelling to the player, thus making the menu stuff just a bother because you didn't get anything for all the complexities that it added to the weapon management. Here, like you still have the complexities and some of the nuisances of weapon management, but I'm much more willing to deal with that because I'm doing interesting things with the weapons, um, and that makes that whole mechanic and that whole system feel purposeful. Um, and that, I think, is a substantial improvement. And then the last substantial improvement for me is that the world is actually has things to do in it that give you things that aren't shrine orbs. That was like probably my number one complaint with Breath of the Wild was every single thing you did in that game, with like a handful of exceptions, the only meaningful improvement they gave you or reward they could provide you with was a shrine orb, um, whether that was you're doing the shrines or you had the like open world puzzles that gave you shrines. And obviously, you, um, or gave you a shrine orb at the end. Obviously, you have Korok seeds in that first game, but those are 
like uninteresting and those are already way more interesting in Tears of the Kingdom where like uh, the Korok suits are an amazing part of Breath of the Wild and I will not broker dissent on that but I I agree it feels like they took the Korok seed philosophy and spread it over the entire game in Tears of the Kingdom there's so much more stuff like that there are so many other economies to interact yes. with and ways to like find puzzles and things in the world yeah and and like the Korok seed puzzles that exist are more interesting it's not I mean, some of the ones that from the last game still are there, but you have the ones that are, here's a Korok, you need to get this thing over there. It's really Do it. Yeah. Like, those are awesome. That's so much more interesting than, here's a circle of rocks with one rock in the middle. Pick up the rock in the middle and you get a Korok seed. Or here's a circle of rocks and one of the rocks is missing. Put the rock that is missing into the rock circle of rocks, right? Like, so many of those puzzles were like that, and it became like excessive to me in that first game here. It's like, that is a puzzle that when I run into it, I'm excited to do that. And the reward is at least early on, you know, I'm at the point where like Korok seeds are actually giving me something useful because I want more inventory slots, but there's so many things like there's caves, which is awesome. The first game had no meaningful underground areas, either big or small caves. So caves, but they have these little like monsters in them that when you kill them, they give you a currency. I don't, I haven't seen what you do with the currency yet, but it's like, well, that's a reason to go into that cave because I know I'm going to get something out of it. Um, there, I've already found more pieces of clothing um, like early on that feels like that is yeah. like something that feels more readily actively available where that did feel like there were many of them in Breath of the Wild. So I'm already getting some of those. And there was a character I met that pointed out where some of them were. You're getting more mini side quests, um, some a little bit larger, some of very like small, but they're using the sandbox stuff in interesting ways. There's almost like bits and pieces of this game that weirdly remind me of fucking of Gravity Rush 2 was a game I thought about where Gravity Rush 2 has a bunch of those little tiny quests that are just about helping people in the world using the physics um, for that with the gravity stuff for here it's with ultra hand but it's like making a wagon for this lady or fixing the sign for the guy which is a repeatable one that you run into like those add a variety of different kinds of objectives you're accomplishing that have flavor and personality to them because they're based around characters you meet in the world that you're having to use your abilities in interesting ways to solve those um, like there were so few of those kinds of things in Breath of the Wild that like everyone remembers the like five of them that were there in Breath of the Wild because that's like the only ones you had and so much of the rest of it was so sparse um, and having more people, characters uh, populate the world and have them have more things they can give the player to do to me gives me just like much more of a kind of a motive to continue exploring because I feel like I'm not doing the same small handful of objectives repeated over and over and over again. I'm running into new stuff that feeds into a wider array of different sort of reward structures and systems and mechanics that give me variety as a player, give me something to like chase after um, and motivate me to continue engaging with the game's mechanics, which is just something that I found incredibly lacking personally in Breath of the Wild. Well, yeah, and, and I liked Breath of the Wild, obviously, quite a bit more than you did. But I generally agree with this. I think this game took, I think Tears of the Kingdom took a long, hard look at, like, what is the thing people liked most about Breath of the Wild? Which is, I think, the world, the sense of freedom, the sense of exploration, the sense of player motivation, right? And, and that the world could feel alive in those ways. And they said, how can we make Tears of the Kingdom expand on that? And I think it is exponentially better at all of those things yes. that people liked Breath of the Wild for. Um, and I think that's what is so cool about it. So, like, if that sense of discovery is something that spoke to you in Breath of the Wild, it is so exponentially bigger here because that sense of discovery is not just, 
letting the world unfold, which is all there because it is fundamentally the same map at the core of it, although there's all this other stuff too. Um, and it has all of that and it uses the same sort of map system and all of those philosophies that have already, we've seen, been really influential on games ever since and for good reason because that's the stuff that was so core to what Breath of the Wild did. But I think that it's built all these mechanics you're talking about, Sean, on top of it that lead to... You know, this is the conversation each time I, my brother and I have had a couple of phone calls just like checking in on this game. And it's like we're constantly telling each other things that we figured out that we had no idea you could do. And it's like every time I sit down to play this game, those core systems of Ultra Hand and Fusion and what you can do with the weapons and, and some puzzles and like ways Ascend is useful. That like it's constantly like a bigger, more free system than I think you realized at first blush. And I do think it's not just that those systems exist in the game. I think the game is very good at creating designed environments yes. for those systems to be leveraged, along with a lot of other freedom as well. But part of like how those systems are designed to be leveraged, one of the things I'm most impressed with, with like the shrines, for instance, is that I'm often getting to the end of a shrine going, I have no idea if I did that the way the developers intended, but it worked. And that is a thing that like, it's something I, I feel like, this is something I find amazing about Tears of the Kingdom is as developers, you have to have a certain level of trust in the player to give these tools out in the first place. And then you have to have a certain level of trust in like the physics and the like just general foundation of your game itself to let these tools run wild because there are ways around problems that you can invent a million different fucking solutions out of and they can be very silly or they can be very straightforward but they can all sort of work equally well and there's a lot of scenarios where I've run into where I'm like I know I could do this a different way but I'm doing it this way or I'll see someone else having done it differently online or I'll talk to my brother and be like oh I did it this way um, and there is that level of like free exploration but I also think that it is designed in a way that leverages that really really intelligently like the one that for me has been the revelation because I was really bad about using it in the early hours was Ascend which is the you can just click mm -hmm. Ascend which I have to imagine is inspired by years of Nintendo developers watching people do speed runs of Ocarina of Time and Mario where they clip through the world and they're like well what if we just added clipping through the world into our game and that's what Ascend is um and realizing how much the world is designed around making Ascend really useful. Mm -hmm. Like, I spent a good amount of time exploring those caves and getting frustrated because I was having trouble getting out of the caves until I remembered, I can ascend out of these caves. Or like, oh, I can ascend up into that enemy encampment and come out in the middle and fuck them up. Yeah. Or like, this shrine wants me to use Ascend. And like, there's a lot of places where it is this, I think, balance between creating systems that are big and free and encourage creativity and then creating scenarios and designed elements of the world, be that just the way the open world is laid out or specific scenarios within that world to encourage that creativity. And I think Tears of the Kingdom is so good at both of those. Yes. Uh, and I think retrospectively, I think you are, it bothered me less, but I think you're generally correct that Breath of the Wild fell maybe short on the second one of those particular. And Tears of the Kingdom, the balance is, obviously it's working because it's all anyone's talking about and for good reason. Yeah, because I've, you know, I've, you know, cleared out several like enemy bases and stuff like that. And like every single one I've done, there have been like multiple things in there that have like clearly been put there by a game designer to be like, here are some tools you can use to clear this base. That's not just run in, flurry, rush um, and kill everything with our very bad combat. 
Um, like there's there's just stuff that you can do, whether it's ascending into enemy bases that they build the bases for some of them such that they create spots for that or here are little pockets that will have explosive barrels. Um, and then you have like all like the crazy things you can stick onto arrows with fuse that do different yes. effects that give you I different love that stuff. abilities. Or it's also like one thing that's fun is you've got those like Zonai like monster like not monsters but like robot thingies in the world yes um and you've got the bacoblins and they there are multiple scenarios i've seen where you can set things up to get them to fight each other and things like that which i suspect some of that probably did technically work in breath of the wild but i don't remember engaging i don't remember like seeing scenarios where it felt like oh i can make these lizalfos fight the bacoblins or something like that here it's like no you can bring like destroy this barrier lure this thing over here and like cause this giant battle to happen you just sit back and watch which is one of the most fun things to do in any video game ever going back to the original doom making a fucking zombie shooting imp and then now the imps and zombies are fighting like that's you know that's a fucking video game um and i feel like tears of the kingdom really has figured out ways to build in spots for those powers to be like to make sense, to be effective, and for that to be very clear and legible to the player, which is a really critical thing to like make the player feel prompted in some ways by the game to remember, oh, right, I have ascend. So this little, like, why is this weird little nook here under the base? Aha, ascend. Or it's like, why is there these like logs over here or whatever of ascend? Like, or there's a big iron ball that they can use as a trap? Well, I can use it as a trap with my ultra hand and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and it feels like the world is much better designed to prompt the player to think about those things and engage with those mechanics while also giving you abilities to just do fucking insane wild shit that is totally unprompted by the game. But if you want to go there, like the game is fully capable of going there. Um, and that to me personally is is just a lot more interesting experience for me as a player than I felt like I would, I got from Breath of the Wild, even in my favorite moments of that game early on. Um, I feel like I'm having a better time with this one. Um there are some things that I, I wish were a little bit improved um, or like the, the improves is like I, I, I wish that they didn't with the story stuff. I really wish that Zelda didn't get like disappeared again. Like I, I feel like there's one thing I didn't like about Breath of the Wild was I was ultimately so disappointed with the story that game told by the time you get to the end of it. Um, and there was something about they characterize Zelda in such a fun way. And you get that in the flashbacks in Breath of the Wild, and you get in the opening scene of this game. I was really bummed out when Zelda just. Well, got wait, have you done? Have you done any of the cutscenes you find with her out in the world? I've, I've seen. I've seen one of the tears cutscenes, so I know that you get cutscenes. But I'm saying, like, I wish that she was just like a character there that was doing stuff in the world and like was an active presence. Okay, I understand that. I think what they're doing with her in the story is really cool. Like the story that you're piece, piecing together about. Um, minor spoiler, but she gets sent into the past of yes. Hyrule. And so, I mean, it is a little different because she is being like, it is technically the past, but it is parallel. Like, I got a really cool cutscene earlier where I will just say, um, in, in the early part of the game, Link, there's this moment where he holds up the Master Sword at this, the, 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 hel mm -hmm. the helm of it, which the rest of it is destroyed, and it gets uh, taken by Zelda in the past. And I got the other side of that scene. And I just, I like her, there's, there's, because it is not, this happened and then she is now over here in Carbonite in Ganon's castle and you have to go save her. It is, she is on parallel working on that side of like time doing stuff. And I thought that was cool. Um, and I like, yeah, I scenes. guess like, I just wish that the objective of the game was not, we have to go save Zelda again. Like that's just like disappointing and uninteresting to me. 
Um, because like the direct Zelda sequels have like a history of doing more interesting things with the story because you can't just do another we gotta save Zelda story. Um, and here they're like, now we're just gonna do another you gotta save Zelda story. I'm I like, don't really? know if I would say that. It's you're looking for her, but it's like especially with what I'm seeing of the plot, I don't think the end of this game is like literally rescuing Zelda. I think we're looking for where the hell did she go. Um, but I, my sense is that's not exactly where it's going. I could be wrong and I could eat my words. Um, yeah. I don't know. They, they, they still have not explained to me how, why Zelda is not a hundred years older from that first game where she was fighting Calamity Ganon for a hundred years and she just comes out she's like 18. And it's like... Time magic. Uh, that first <laughs> game story just did not work for me. So like, I, 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 like I was it. hoping... I will say... I was hoping for some I, different stuff in the setup early on, I guess. I did like the setup early on. I think all that stuff where you're, it starts with you and Zelda going down below the earth. And then that first scene with Ganondorf, that's a scary, cool version mm-hmm. of Ganondorf. And his, I'm playing it with Japanese voices because the English voices oh, oh, are yeah. unbelievably bad. Yes. Um, again, just abysmal, terrible. Um, uh, but the Japanese voices are great. And Japanese Ganondorf sounds fucking cool. I love him. But generally, yes. I like the characters. I like Raudu, who is the like first king of Hyrule, who you interact with early on, and then he's a big player in the tier cutscenes. Um, and then there's a lot of there's just like a lot more people in the world that you talk to. I think one of the the choices that they make that's really cool is that um, they don't direct you to go here, but it is basically the first place you're so kind of supposed to go find because I think out of natural curiosity you head towards Hyrule Castle and you find that there's a little settlement there. And I think that's a really smart choice to have a hub in the center of the world Mm -hmm. where a lot of the main people are or you find them and then they branch off and they go elsewhere and you follow them Um, it almost feels like this is like Genshin Impact feeding back in on Zelda because Mm -hmm. it is this kind of MMO-esque hub where you have a little bit of everything and some of those things you can access elsewhere like the statues you pray at but you'll know a version of it all of it is in this central Hyrule area and it's a very lively area to go to and then you find people all over the world it's just a much more lively version of Hyrule that feels like people are around in it more yeah I I I like that a lot more because I think in Breath of the Wild it just always felt like it sometimes just felt weird because it felt like the kingdom was so desolate that it felt like almost post-apocalyptic where it was like, like how much of like, what is almost the point of defeating Calamity Ganon if like everyone is dead <laughs> um, other than the couple of like, like special races like the Gorons and they have their little cities. Um, whereas here it feels more like, yes, this is like a living community of people. And that was something I think I was missing more broadly from Breath of the Wild. It only existed in weird little pockets. Here it feels like you have a sense of Hyrule as a like kingdom and as a nation existing with people in it. And they're like aware of this problem and they're working towards it and all that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, that's like immediately um, like that side of the story stuff I'm enjoying more. Like it's the big picture stuff. And I'm still super early on. So this might change. But I just remember being bummed when Zelda got whisked away again. I'm like, come on, please just can we can we not do that with Zelda once? Can we just have her be like Link's buddy and helping or, you know, God forbid, a fucking playable character would be cool um, just for some variety's sake for the storytelling. Um, But yeah, but that other side of the story I'm I'm definitely liking. And I have only done, so again, the the main quest line, it is more complicated than the Breath of the Wild because you have your main, the big like four areas you have to go to, but then there are other multiple long running quest lines in the game that are yeah. other things to do, like finding the tiers and stuff like that. That's just, and all the stuff with the underground and, and all sorts of things. But those main four, I've done one of the four I did. I went north and found the, the re, or northeast and found, or northwest 
and found all the Rito stuff, which is a really cool section of the game because it's the first area I think you're at least guided to encounter that is from the original map, but it has been radically altered in that it is now a snow area. And everything about that is very cool. I don't want to spoil it too much, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's Rito, they're birds, and it involves you going into the sky. And this game has a bunch of stuff in the sky. And the journey that you make up to the first big temple is one of the coolest sections I've ever played in a Nintendo game. It is basically what if uncharted climbing section, but miles above the earth, but also the earth is something you can see and you can go fall down to at any moment if you want to, uh, because the full like continuity of space in this game is really fucking cool and very much leveraging kind of how the original game did it as well, just now adding that verticality, which is really cool. Uh, and then the temple itself, I liked a lot. It's, it's similar in some ways to the Divine Beasts, but I actually think it plays at least the one I've played, maybe the other ones are different. This one I thought played much better to the strengths of the Divine Beasts. It was even less like a traditional Zelda dungeon and more like a big explorable area using the physics of the game as established. And so I thought it worked really well. It did not necessarily scratch the old school Zelda dungeon itch, but there are a lot of games I can go play if I want to scratch the old school Zelda dungeon itch. I don't need this game to do that. Um, so I liked that a lot. And the story stuff around it is great. There's a character you meet and have an adventure with who's really cool. Um, and it's just a, a very, very awesome section of the game. And then we need to talk about, have you done anything in the depths yet? Yes, I did like the first, you know, you get in that initial town you, you're sort of pointed there where the guy with the glasses goes down there and you, it's like there's yeah. some statues so yeah i went down there and like kind of did that and then i and then i went back out nice i i went to the depths by accident earlier on i went to explore the plateau the great plateau which is where you start in the first game and you do not start there in the second game so i wanted to go back and see what was going on in the plateau and i wound up falling into a hole and i went down to the depths and just without any instruction was trying to explore the depths before i went and did that first quest and it's cool like the the main gameplay loop of the depths is all about darkness because it's there's no light down there and so you you collect these um little light bulbs like bulbs is in the sense of their flowers uh that you get from caves on the surface world you don't find them in the depths you find them on the surface so this is actually something cool the game does there are resources on there's three levels to the game and there's resources on each you need for other ones that you can only find on other ones so it makes you actively switch between sky land and depths but anyway you find these little light bulbs and you can throw those to try to create some light for yourself and explore and you're looking for basically the underground version of the towers which light up the area and show you some stuff on your map and then you find stuff down there in the depths based on that and it's a really cool gameplay loop because it's so much it's like the opposite of the Breath of the Wild Hyrule, where the Breath of the Wild Hyrule is this vast expanse with the infinite draw distance where you can see everything and you kind of pick it. You're like, I want to go to that mountain peak. And in the depths, you can't see very far in front of you at all. So it's a very different kind of journey. There's a lot of the Zonai building stuff you get and you learn down there because all of the crazy contraptions you can make and you can build yourself a little car and put lights on it so you can go through the gloom and all of that it's uh it's neat and it is also just mind-bogglingly big because it is just the entire landmass of hyrule doubled underneath it yeah like i said i've only sort of like dipped my toes down there with that first quest line um it does seem interesting like is the one thing i, I want to know is there more variety to the sort of environment um because like everything i saw when i explored around there was all like very same. It serves like it's the same kinds of trees, the same kind of sort of like blasted underground 
surface? Like, is there any variety there or is it just kind of like that in all the different sections? Um, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's all like that, especially because I did a, one of those moments where I zoomed, I thought I had explored a lot of the depths and then I zoomed out on the map and went, there's way more of this than I've Mm -hmm. seen. I think it generally has a pretty similar, like underground aesthetic with kind of similar trees and rock formations, but there are places you'll find that are different. There's some like mines and settlements and things like that. Um, I found an area earlier with a, a story about the, the Yiga clan that was really neat. Um, it is definitely, it is samier than anything on the surface, which is much more varied because it's a big surface world. But I don't know. There could be something crazy waiting for me down there that I have not seen yet, too. Okay, just hearing that there are, like, settlements, like, that's, like, kind of what I wanted to know. Just because, like, I, I went around, like, a little bit more than what I had originally looked at. But, like, I kept on going for a while. It just didn't seem like there was anything there. But I probably just was, like, in a particularly, like, empty section of it or whatever. Like, I have to imagine, because there are different holes on the surface that go down. I have to imagine that they probably, like, populate those sorts of areas with, like, places of interest. I think so. And there's, like, there's multiple, like, big ruin sites that have, like, big statues and, like, things to interact with. Um there's there's definitely there's areas that are inaccessible just moving through the underground that you have to go back up to the surface and find a different way in um so that breaks it up too i've, I've been dealing with that a little bit um and there's there's some cool stuff like there's some rewards on the surface where you'll find treasure chests and it gives you a map to something in the depths and just marks an x on your map oh, and you have cool. to go find it in the depths that's really neat yeah um, and there's stuff like that, I think. And then there's, you know, there's stuff you will find in the depths that leads you back to the sky. I will say one of the coolest things I've found so far is in the far northeast I was exploring. And I found, do you remember the big maze in Breath of the Wild? Mm-hmm. The, like, big, like, it's like this tall maze that you can climb up and look down, but then you have to go around. There is a three-tiered version of that across all three parts of the map that is really neat as a, like, quest line uh, nice, that I did last night. That maze in Breath of the Wild was one of the things about that game that I thought was silly, where it's like, I mean, you could do the maze, or you could just fly over the maze and drop down into the <laughs> the center of it where they all led to you and just take the treasure and climb up and leave, which is what I did. I was like, I mean, I, I feel clever for being able to solve this, but also I just completely fucked over this entire piece of content. It um, is more and, complicated, yeah. Yeah, the, I feel like Tears of the Kingdom has, like, understood a little bit that, like, it's okay to put some of those kinds of barriers in front of players. Like, you know, like, Genshin Impact has some mazes like that, and they're just, like, you maybe can see through the top, but there's, like, an invisible barrier that you have to actually go through the fucking maze. And I, I think, like, Tears of the Kingdom has a little bit more of that of, like, Sometimes you just got to go through the maze. Sometimes you just have to engage with the content. You can't just completely skip all of it because you're like climbing and flying and all of that. It was so like everything was so immediately accessible to you in Breath of the Wild and like having caves and that kind of stuff. Like like you can ascend out of caves, but you can't descend into them. You want to go to that cave? You got to go through the fucking entrance. And I like that the game has choke points and things like that in it that feel like the developers have understood that you can have lots of freedom and you can have it be open and give all these powers to players and you can still do certain specific things to restrict specific areas to make them have a more designed experience to prompt players and give them something like variety and i think breath of the wild i think they get a little bit too far in the direction of we want everything to be open we, you should just be able to beat the game in five minutes because you can just book it to Ganon and you can just go anywhere and all that and it's like that's 
cool, but it also is, it's the thing that gave that game this very light, breezy feel to it that like slowly killed it to me because it just felt like because I could cheese everything so simply, it was like, why would I engage with any of this material if I can just fly over it? Why would I go through the desert if I can just fly over it? Um, it's like going through the desert is more interesting. So it's like sometimes you just got to make you do it. And I feel like Tears of the Kingdom has like figured that balance out a lot better early on to me than Breath of the Wild did. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's a much harder game than Breath of the Wild. Like, it actually feels like playing Breath of the Wild on master mode. Like, enemies just hit you way harder. Um, I mean, God, I was fighting a fucking Lizalfos earlier today. I have eight hearts at the moment. I've put most of my shrine points into stamina, as you should. Yes. Um, but that Lizalfos uh, took seven hearts off of me and killed me. I, I had seven out of eight, and it just hit me once, and I was dead. Uh, so it's a much harder game. Um, which I think is smart because you have many more tools uh, to work with. But yeah, and like that maze, for instance, Sean, uh, I tried the fly overhead and find the center. Well, if you go to the center, it's locked. You have to find something else in the maze to get to the center. Thank so you. like, yes. yeah, there's stuff like that. It's it's smart. Um, and then there's the, the gloom, which is something you find in the depths is also in there and it's fucking with you. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff like that. It's It's a fascinating game. I also think, and I know... You know, people want to, like, fucking resolution count everything. I think it's a beautiful game again. I think Breath of the Wild is beautiful. I think this one, when you are up in the sky particularly, and, like, I was doing some stuff earlier, again, in that kind of northwest area, and you have, like, the horizon line and the sunset coming up and, like, the, the, the array of colors you're getting from that, and you can see all the sky islands in the distance, but you can also see all the mountains and the world of Hyrule down below you, and it's all there. There's just some really breathtaking moments like that. I think the art direction, again, is just gorgeous. Um, it also performs... I don't know what emulation does to this, but on the actual Nintendo Switch, it performs really well. Like, there's a couple of small areas where you will get some frame dips, but, like... It performs better than Breath of the Wild did. Um, it has a more solid frame rate. Um, you know, it's it's got a similar resolution and everything. So for the Nintendo Switch, it is actually quite technically impressive. Yeah, like I obviously can't speak to what that's like playing it on the Switch. Um, I mean, I will say for me with Breath of the Wild, which I played the fucking Wii U version of that game. Um, like I remember thinking that I felt like the art style was was really good. I mean, obviously the art style is really good, but I remember feeling like the technical shortcomings of the console got in the way of the art style of like the lower resolution and the really jagged appearance of the game because it didn't have anti-aliasing like really hurt the art style for me in a way that was, it, it was a game that sometimes felt kind of uncomfortable for me to look at because of how sharp everything was because of that lack of anti-aliasing. Um, and so playing it on, I mean, I think just looking at videos that I don't have as much of an issue with that on the videos I've seen of the Switch version of Tears of the Kingdom. But then also if you play it via emulation, you can fix that. You can force anti-aliasing. You can play at a higher resolution. I think there is technically a mod to allow you to lift the frame rate cap and play it at 60, but a lot of the game's logic is programmed at 30 frames per second. And it plays, this is like Jedi Survivor. This is a big open world action adventure game. You just you don't need to play it at sixty. It's like no. it would be cool if you could. It is not at all a big deal to me that I'm playing it at thirty frames per second. It has good motion blur. Like it looks smooth. Like it's it's fine. Um, and it is nice playing it at a at a higher resolution that I think makes the art like it makes the art stand out better. It feels like the the art isn't sort of having to be shoved through. Um, a slightly like lower resolution filter than what it feels like is kind of designed for or wants to be. You know, like if you go to that original Tears of the Kingdom trailer they had 
which is higher resolution and does have anti-aliasing and looks really fucking good. Um, and that is not really how the final game looks because it doesn't have all that post-processing on it. Like if you play it on emulator, it looks a lot closer to that kind of image. And that is very nice. So, you know, not necessarily promoting that to people. Like I do feel weird. I, th I will probably just like buy a copy of this game because it does feel very weird to play like a game that is currently on the market and not like a Japanese version of a Gundam wing fighting game <laughs> come from 25 years ago that like you could only get, you right. know, like used game store in Japan. Um, so it's like, I, you know, I don't want to just say people should just emulate this thing, but if people are interested in it, it's fucking super easy to do. Um, especially if you, you know, there are ways if you have a switch cart that you can like, uh, down, like get that onto your computer with certain gear and stuff. So it's like, you know, if you have the means available, it is very easy to do. It runs incredibly well on my emulator. And um, if you, uh, this is something I discovered by accident, but it's fucking insane to me that this just like works so easily because I didn't even have to do anything to get it to work. If you play with a dual sense controller, which is what I have plugged into my PC, all the fucking motion aiming works with the gyros. So it's That's like, awesome the because the motion aiming is one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. yeah. And it feels really good. It's tuned really well um, in the game. And so I'm actually like using that for aiming the arrows and stuff for like the fine adjustment and... Uh, so if you use a dual sense, like it just fucking I'm using Yuzu as my emulator. It fucking just does it. And I'm like, that's insane. I I've that feels like a thing that would be very it, it seems like a thing that would be hard for an emulator to do. But it just like reads that on the controller and like does it right away. And it's, that's fucking cool. Yeah. No, Tears of the Kingdom uses the gyro in very... Breath of the Wild did, too, in very smart ways. Like, anything where you want that little extra fine motion, like, yeah. stuff you would want a mouse for on your PC, it can do that. So, like, you're you're aiming with your bow, or, like, taking pictures with the camera, all of that stuff. In fact, I mean, same with Breath of the Wild. I play this with the split Joy-Cons when I'm playing on the couch, because it is... There's something about having the two where, like, one of them actually aims is how the Joy-Con work, and that's just a little more precise. Um, that feels very good. But yeah, no, I, I like that that's all in there. Any any game where you can aim with a bow should have motion controls. That's like my red line in the sand. I don't like it when consoles that have gyro in it, like the PlayStation or the Nintendo Switch, then have a bow and arrow and don't let you gyro aim because I want to with a bow and arrow. Yeah. I mean, it should it should be a thing that is more of a common option on Sony's stuff. Like, and, and you know, there are Sony games. I believe Horizon implemented it later, um, but it's like a thing that you don't expect on PlayStation games from at launch at least. And it would be cool if they did it more. It's one of those things that's like, I really wish the Xbox controller had that shit in it. Because if all of them yeah. had it, I feel like developers would be more inclined on those third-party games on Xbox and PlayStation to implement that kind of stuff. Because it's cool and it's useful. And it's like, you know, Gravity Rush um, on Sony did it super well. And so it's like, it's yeah. a thing that you can turn off and you can use right stick aiming and it's totally fine. Like, you don't have to use it. It's an option in the game, but... Um, for the option being there. I wish it's a thing that more games did because it, it works super well in Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm having so much fun with it. I'm excited to get back and see what other crazy shit I can fuse. Because that's the other thing. It's just like, I love the joy of this game just allowing you to make silly shit and mm -hmm. like fuck around. And people have made giant Gundam robots and they've made big robots with flame penises using the different pieces. And, you know, I've just, I enjoy just like taking a big long stick and then tying a second big long stick to it. And then you have a thing for the combat that no one is ever going to touch you because you can swing it in a giant circle. You know, it's insane. And I think the... And that, 
enemies do that too. Like you can fight yes. enemies and then you're like, and you're like, what the fuck is this? And it's like, it's like, why do you have like a how a rusty halberd and like a super thick <laughs> stick stuck to it? Like what the fuck were yes. you doing? You weird goblin man. It's, I love when you find those. Sometimes you find really good versions of those also. Um, yeah, it's, you know, my, <laughs> my brother was like, the other night he's like have you been fusing all your most powerful weapons together and i'm like ah, I, i've been doing something he's like no no no. you have to take your two strongest weapons and tie them together because then you have like a weapon that can do 60 damage and i'm like i should start doing that and there's just you know and i've also found things where i think i found if you tie like a shield to a stick then you get like extra sneak strike and so then i'll do stuff like i'll fuse a puff shroom to my arrow which creates a bunch of smoke then this was great in an enemy encampment i did this the other day i threw in the puff shroom and then i went in with my shield stick and then that gives me extra if you attack them from the back power. Uh, and because they were all disoriented because of the smoke, I just went one, two, three, and killed every Bacoblin behind execution style. And it was great. And I love it. And, you know, um, I saw this morning there was an interview with A.G. Numa where he confirmed this game was done like in March of last year. And they just spent the last year like bug testing the crazy physics and systems. And it does feel like, yeah, that's what took six years is that these mm -hmm. systems are so nutso the fact that they like work and that the game isn't broken as shit is like a testament to how much polish the game has. But I also think like this game could only exist as a sequel. You have to have the foundation mm -hmm. of something like Breath of the Wild to have the confidence to build stuff that you have here. Um, and it's a really cool testament to, I think, um, you know, what you can do when you have a, a team that is like this dedicated this committed, you know, has actual job security uh, yeah. and and can build on a, a game like Breath of the Wild. It's really neat. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a good time. Like, and so like, if if people are like me and you played Breath of the Wild and you have similar complaints as me, like, I think Tears of the Kingdom at least so far feels like a game worth checking out. Um, there are a couple of points I wanted to say. I want remember to say in the conversation. One, ascend is a cool power. Is it? But also, is it just me or is it kind of? There's something kind of gross about it. There's something like about the image of when Link's like half sticking up out of the ground when you can like look around and pop out. That's like a little bit gross feeling. It's like I, I get like a weird sensation when I see him do that. It is weird. My brother and I were talking about this the other night and and. Uh, one, I love that you can go back. If you pop your head out and you're, you look like a fucking groundhog seeing your shadow. And if you're like, you know what? No, six more weeks of, win weeks of winter, you can press B and go back down, which is great. I do wish, though, that when you popped out in a monster encampment, it kind of freezes time. I think it would be funnier if all the monsters, like, saw you and were like, what the fuck? Link is sticking halfway out of the ground, and I would love it if they were coming to attack you, and then you hit B, and you're like, nope, nope, nope. I think that would be even funnier. Yeah, it is. It is like it is a. I think it makes a lot of sense from a gameplay pers like game design perspective why you'd have this power. It is also like kind of gross and creepy, <laughs> um, that he can just sort of slither his way through solid stone and just like peek his little fucking elfy face up out and just like look at you, of a little freak. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted to mention this because I got a huge kick out of it, and and I have a conspiracy theory that someone at fucking Nintendo listened to the podcast we did when I complained about breath of the wild stuff because if you remember one of the, my things what with breath of the wild like in a very early disappointment i had with that game 
was coming down from the Great Plateau and there was like a big like village that was flooded or something like that. And I thought a monster in there. And then there was a well that was like, oh, here's like a ring of stones and a little hut and all the stuff is like there in a bucket. It's like, there's a well. I was like, awesome. I've played Zelda games. Wells and Zelda games have monsters and treasure and shit in them. Going back to the old school Zelda, the Ocarina of Time, like the wells in Kakariga Village is a big thing. Let me go go into that well. And then... It wasn't a well. It was a thing that looked like a well, but it just had like it was just sitting on the ground and there was just a ground texture right there. And I was very disappointed. And it was like an early thing that indicated to me that Breath of the Wild was more that some of the exploration stuff in Breath of the Wild was more literally surface level than I wanted it to be. Well, well, if you have that issue, don't worry. Tears of the Kingdom. Not only are there wells, there is a fucking well subquest where there's yes. a lady in the I have to assume this is just whatever the first well you find she just they just put her there um but there's just a lady in the well and she's like I'm from the Hyrule Well Appreciation Society or some wacky shit and I'm going around and looking at all the wells are you a well enthusiast too and I'm like yes as a matter of fact in video games I am a well enthusiast thank you very much and it's like well every well you find if you go find me and tell me about it I'll give you money um there's like 53 wells or something ridiculous um and so it's the uh, i either someone listened to that i know obviously nobody fucking listened to that podcast at uh, nintendo but someone at nintendo knew they were like it is fucking dumb that we made a well art asset for this game and it just sits on solid ground and there's a whole history of zelda specifically but like games in general doing fun shit with wells having a well in a video game is like having a waterfall in a video game you have a well there should be something in there you have a waterfall there should be something behind it like it's just the fucking rules i don't make them i just live by them so i am glad that zelda nintendo got their fucking shit together and they put some wells in the game and they and they're so proud of their wells that they even put a side quest around it and i lost my shit when i met that lady it's like we are on the same wavelength well lady yes wells are cool and i think that must have been actually luck when you found her because i didn't find her until i had eight wells yeah so she's somewhere specific yeah but anyway no i love that too and i love that the wells are like there's always a little anticipation because some of them are just a very simple room with some monsters and treasure. And some of them are big adventures, Mm -hmm. you know, that like have a ton of stuff in them. Uh, I I have to wonder if this was something they wanted to do in breath of the wild and like ran out of time on, because I mean, that's probably true of a lot of stuff in this game because part of why they made it is because they had stuff they still wanted to make, but it is like, because you're right, those wells are in Breath of the Wild. And I remember in tears of the kingdom, I saw one of those wells and I was like, at first I'm like, ah, there's probably nothing there. And I'm like, well, wait, wait a second. What if? And then I went over and like dipped my head in and I'm like, oh, they did it. They did it. They did it. There's wells. This is great. And there's a well appreciation society lady. Also, just like the writing is very funny with yeah. all the citizens of Hyrule. There's the little newspaper that exists now in Hyrule and all of that is funny. Um, Although also this like- is we now live in a world where if everyone knows that weird fun fact about how like all the random NPCs in Breath of the Wild were made off of like seeds generated by Mies. And I cannot unsee it now that they all have me faces underneath it all. And it's like, it's yeah. obviously, I didn't know that when I played Breath of the Wild because nobody knew it then. But now it's like, I can't help but every time I run into a random NPC character, <laughs> I look at them as like, look at your stupid fucking me face. You can't, you can't lie to me, game. This is just a me. I can see it. It is amazing the legacy me's have had. The Wii is an old system at this point, but the highest selling game of 2023 has me's all over it. You yes. can't escape them. Yeah. 
it's a good game. I am excited to play more. We'll keep you updated on that. But yeah, Tears of the Kingdom, very good time. Not that you probably need us to tell you that, but it is very cool. And I'm glad you've been playing it, Sean. That made this conversation more fun. Yes, yeah. It was, I, you know, I, I wanted to play it just to, on my initial instinct was just like, oh, I should just play some of it so I can just talk about it on the podcast from the like Breath of the Wild hater plays Tears of the Kingdom and make a dumb fucking YouTube thumbnail on it. Um, but yeah, it's like it's legitimately a good game and I'm going to keep playing it. Like, again, enough that I'll probably just buy a copy for my conscience and because they made a good game, they deserve the money. But um, but they deserve the money. I'm not going to pay four hundred and twenty dollars to buy a fucking. 350 switch OLED in the game, but I'll pay them 70 bucks for it. 